Oscar goes to Casablanca. Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. Ciao, my people, and welcome to our 16th episode of Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast, where we travel through time, reviewing the films that earned their gold statue, or standard, if you will. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and as always, joining me at the Gold Standard Theatre are my two podcasting partners in crime. On one side, the lady who puts the friend in beautiful friendship, Rachel Friend. Hey, Rachel, how are you? Yvonne, I love you. (laughs) love it and on the other the lady i would get drunk and go fishing with the fantabulous zan sprouse hey zan how are you today how's it going yeah and now with our new president we might actually be able to go to canada and actually do that at some point i i certainly hope so i've never fished in my life but someday i'd like to learn have you fished before zan oh i have i come from a family of fishermen so um My my dad on good years when there's not a pandemic goes on uh, like a week long fishing trip every year with friends and a boat on Lake Erie and you know my my grandfather's house was sort of various mounted fish trophies everywhere <laughs> and even even my cousin married a guy who loves fishing so yeah we're a fishing family. Well, then you'll you'll definitely be able to teach me indeed. But ladies, we're of course not alone, as joining us today in the Gold Standard Theatre are two special guests. On one hand, the man who I'm sure would let me win at roulette if I asked him, Jesse Jackson. Hey, Jesse, how are you? And welcome to Gold Standard. I am shocked to find podcasting in this administration. I am shocked. (laughs) I love that. Who's your podcast, sir? Yes. And on the other, the guy who I think would look great in a fedora, John Takas. Hey, John, how are you? And welcome to the podcast. Oh, that, thanks for having me on. I never thought I'd uh, look bad in a fedora, but uh, <laughs> yeah, well, we, we could see that. <laughs> I, well, now I definitely want, I want to t- see pictures of you wearing a fedora indeed, John. So, guys, today we are reviewing Casablanca, directed by Michael Curtis, who our listeners might know from White Christmas, Angels with Dirt Faces, Mildred Pierce, and more. It was released to the public on January the 23rd of 1943, based on the play Everybody Comes to Ricks by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison. The screenplay was written by the Epstein brothers, Julius J. and Philip G., together with Howard cock and the music was by max steiner an estimate to put in today's money this movie cost around 15 million dollars to make and made 103 million at the box office and has a runtime of roughly one hour and 40 minutes so starting off here guys let's look at first impressions here jesse i believe this is not the first time you sat down to watch casablanca so what were your thoughts should we say on your rewatch and what made you decide you wanted to come on to discuss this one so Casablanca is one of those films that I had not seen till I was about in my middle 20s, though it had been everywhere, right? Like the Woody Allen movie parody of it, 
and you had seen, you know, that parodies of the airport scene and, and all this discussion. And, and the first time I watched it, I, I, I liked it. And then I watched it again a few years later and loved it. And now then this, this feels like Shakespeare to me. You know how some people can quote lines from Shakespeare's plays, the dialogue and the information in this film, I just think is classic. And this is truly one of my favorite films. In fact, when people ask me, what is your favorite film? I say classic Casablanca, modern American president. So I was just immediately when I heard you guys were talking Oscars, you know, I, Nick, I have to be this. I have to be this. Whether you're going to have guest stars or not. (laughs) <laughs> well great and and john what about you i mean i i from what i've heard you're quite the the casablanca fan yourself uh when when it comes to comics it's iron man uh when it comes to movies i mean i yeah i was a star wars kid growing up but uh casablanca became the uh the go-to i mean, when i was uh when i was taking classes for broadcasting and screenwriting i read countless books on on writing scripts, and they always would refer to Casablanca as the perfect script ever, like ever written. And I, I, I had to, I had to see the, I had to see what was going on. I actually read the script before I saw the movie. And when I, I even after reading the script, I was like, I have to see this. And this was like, like late teens, early twenties, and to this day, I watch it every day, every year on my birthday, and I've seen. Uh, Apart from that, I've seen it countless times, and I've got quite the little Casablanca collection going on as well. So, I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, from start to finish, it's just pure enjoyment. Mm, wonderful. And, Zan, I know you have thoughts on this movie. So, when it, when it came to, to first impressions, did, was this the first time for you watching it all the way through? I will agree with Jesse. I think it has fantastic dialogue. And... I think Michael Curtiz is a great director. He, you know, I talked about before when we discussed how green was my valley about how much I liked the use of light and shadow in Citizen Kane. Same thing in Michael Curtiz movies, especially this one. Uh, This is a, because it's part romance, part war story, part espionage, part rebellion story there's a lot of goings on that are not so savory so you have these shadows moving through the night and who's it, it uses it uses light fantastic in, in this movie to create a mood um but this and i love everybody in this movie everyone in this movie is is fantastic again i love humphrey bogart i love sydney green street i think he's such a great jovial character who is just the worst person ever that's his forte of being this amazing huggable looking guy that you just probably should take out and shoot in the head because he's a horrible (laughs) and Ingrid Bergman is fantastic Paul Heinrich is great in this movie too because you really don't get to know him very well but you're really behind whatever the heck it is he's doing and again another fantastic slimy character actor peter laurie fabulous we don't get much of him in this movie but we get a little bit of him and as much as it has it has good dialogue and this this and it has good people the story 
is the story is a good premise. I like this, the premise of the story, but I'm just not a huge fan of this movie. There's nothing wrong with it. I just don't care all that much. And I think that's the problem when you have that type of love story mm. where you see people who know each other for a couple of weeks and then all of a sudden they realize they're the love of each other's lives and they can't be together. It's supposed to be this tragic thing and you're supposed to feel the tragedy and the heartbreak for them. But most of the time I'm watching this movie going, yeah, this is a bad idea. Like I'm not rooting for the one <laughs> is my problem. Um, and I feel like she's, and maybe this is me not understanding what it's like to be the wife of, an anti-war person in World War II when there are Nazis, but I don't think there would have been anything wrong telling Rick, listen, you know that husband I told you was dead? I just found out he's alive. I can't run away with you. <laughs> she didn't have to name names. She didn't have to do anything like that. She's just very overly dramatic with her secrets. Mm -hmm. So I feel bad for Rick, but I'm not necessarily rooting for their love story because I don't feel like I know enough about them. And this movie so hinges on that love story that I can see what's good about it. I can see why people love it. And even the filmmakers, I was reading an interview with Ingrid Bergman, that they weren't 100% sure how they wanted to end this. That they mm. just were sort of winging it. They were going to shoot two endings where she stays with Laszlo, where she stays with Rick. And they decided that this one was good, so they just kept doing it. They just kept it. And th this is a great, it, it is a good ending, and we'll talk about that more, but mm. this movie just doesn't set me on fire because I feel like the love story that it hinges on for you to be emotionally invested in these characters doesn't work for me. Mm, okay. And Rachel, you know, you, you finally getting to sit down and watch this all the way through. What were your initial thoughts on, uh, on Casablanca? Uh, I think I'm in the same mindset as, as Zan. Like, it's mm. not a bad movie, but... It's not as all that as people claim it to be in my eyes. You know, this is considered one of the greatest movies ever made. I think it's ranked, you know, in the top five with, you know, Citizen Kane being at number one um, for most people. But, eh, it's like it, it's, it's shot well. It just, it's got, it does good use of the fact that it's in black and white using shadows and, uh, you know, Rick a lot of the time is wearing a white suit jacket and Ilsa's usually in, in white or, you know, a lighter shade. And then you've got people wearing darker colors and, um, you know, the transitions from one room to another while at the cafe and stuff. Um, so it, it shot really well. The soundtrack is great. Um, it's paced really well. I actually thought expected it to be a lot longer than it ended up being before I knew it. They were at there at the, uh, at the airport and, mm -hmm. you know, Rick is giving his goodbye speech. And I'm like, really? That's it. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it was over and I'm like, okay. Uh, other than, you know, you know, shooting some Nazis and getting one over on some Nazis. I don't really care. <laughs> 
<laughs> Interesting. Well, then we'll, we'll definitely see how this, uh, you know, reflects when it comes to ratings indeed. And, you know, like Ra- like you, Rachel, I had seen, you know, most of the famous scenes from this film, but had never seen it as a whole. I mean, I do know this is one of those movies, like you were saying, that most people go to when you talk about the golden age of Hollywood or classic cinema. And I was very much looking forward to seeing it. And just like, you know, with the film Flash Gordon, I was waiting for all the famous quotes because I knew the songs and what have you. And no surprise for the American Film Institute, this is the film with the most entries. This has six in total when it comes to its top 100 movie quotes chart. Not to mention, I absolutely love the song As Time Goes By. And evidently, this film was so iconic for Warner Brothers that they actually tribute it in their opening screen with a few notes of that song quite a few times on other films when you kind of see the Warner Brothers shield appear. So definitely was obvious because they they always want to let you know, hey, we made Casablanca. So it's Mm -hmm. uh, so. um, So, yeah, I I know that they're very, very proud of this one. So speaking of quotes, let's get to one of our start with one of our protagonists who's given pretty much the lion's share of these famous quotes. Mr. Humphrey Bogart, of course, as Rick Blaine. You know, speaking of fedoras, John, let's start with you. What were your thoughts on the character of Rick Blaine? Well, I I liked him because he was like the uh, he, he was a classic antihero. I mean, he uh, he never really lets you see his emotions until he's been drinking, <laughs> which <laughs> I thought was a, he could be he could be talking to somebody and just just be completely straight laced, not no show no emotion at all. But then once he gets there with the uh, with the bourbon, he's he's letting it all letting it all out on the table. Uh, I I. I love Bogart in this movie. I think uh, and Rick Rick Blaine is like a complete. Uh, he could be a complete badass if you if you let him. He gives you enough of his backstory to want more, but you don't get it. So and uh, he it's it's one of those things where he's, he's he says more than once. Uh, I I stick my neck out for no nobody. And he's he's all in, he's in it for himself. Although you find out later on that uh, he's he's done a few things to. Uh, to, to help out other people so but yeah I, I absolutely adore him in this movie right and and zan what about you what were your thoughts on our leading man um i like rick i think that john you're right we do we want more backstory in him and we don't really get it but we get the idea that this is a man who is the way he is because of being crossed or just or, or or left at the train station or what have you that he probably doesn't stick his out his neck out for anybody because when he does it does not work for him <laughs> and we we know that he doesn't fall in love anymore is how it feels to me that he's very I tried that once and I got burned and I'm never doing it again. So I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to stick with any dame for more than a night. He's, he's that kind of character. And he, he's a very anti-hero is a great, is a great uh, way to describe him because here he is. He's this guy who's in Casablanca for probably anybody who is in Casablanca, who is, American, uh, white, or from France or England or something, not there for a good reason. Mm. You know, if, if you're there passing through Casablanca, you're trying to escape. But if you're there in Casablanca making money, you're probably wanted somewhere else, is, 
the impression <laughs> that I'm getting. So and it's, I, it's you know, the original hive of scum and villainy. You've got to be cautious. Exactly. <laughs> and when you look at Humphrey Bogart's character, and if you look at Sidney Greenstreet's character, you're thinking, okay, these are guys who tried to escape something, got stuck here, and now they're making money in whatever unsavory way that they can. Um, Rick's doesn't isn't necessarily a den of prostitution, but I'm pretty sure Green Streets is. So <laughs> he's he's a guy who's making a buck as an honest club owner of a he's an honest owner of a dishonest club. Yeah. So with his loaded roulette tables and his his help with the dealing with the exit exit papers, you know that's what's that's what's going on. In Casablanca, people are fleeing Casablanca to try to be able to get to a place where they can flee to America and escape the war. So it's this, it's that wonderful paradox of doing an unsavory thing for an incredibly savory reason, for a very noble cause. These These are people who, a lot of them will die, well, all of them will die if they stay in Europe. And a lot of them are escaping persecution from the war but then there are some like the guys at the very beginning who are escaping prosecution because they are part of the german war machine Mm -hmm. so you have both types there so it's this seems like this altruistic thing but if these you know like i said any any guy who looks like paul freeman in in indiana jones he's up to no good (laughs) and You've got both of those characters, and Rick is just saying, whoever wants to come in and have a drink and gamble in my place is totally fine, and you can do with what you can deal however you want to deal, blah, 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 things like that. And the the one thing I don't quite understand about Rick, and you know, Humphrey Bogart is a perfect is the perfect one is a perfect one for that because that's very much his character in a Maltese Falcon, also, mm. where he seems like he plays all of the angles. And, you know, he seems like he's easily corrupted, but at the very end of the movie, he's like, yeah, here's all the criminals, and here's that money I was supposed to be bribed with, and send my girlfriend off to prison because she killed everybody. You know, at the at the end, he always does the right thing, and Rick is the same, Rick is the same one, and in the end, he does the right thing. The one thing I don't quite understand about Rick is why he's not going to give them the exit paper. I feel like he doesn't really have a good reason not to. <laughs> <laughs> because he, he, except other than spite, and I feel like Rick isn't the type of guy to do things out of spite. He's the type to do things for money. Like if mm. he had said, "I'm not giving them to you. I have a higher bidder." I feel like that would have made more sense to the character. Mm. But he's saying, "You're not getting these papers," just because he's being a he's being a jerk about it, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And he's that it feels a little bit more emotional than I think Rick would be because. I don't necessarily think he wants to keep her there. I don't necessarily think he has anything against Victor Laszlo. He's just he's just being a fly in the ointment for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a that that feels like a departure of character for him. I, I felt like if there had been something in the movie where he can either give them to Ingrid Bergman when she pulls the gun on him, or he can sell them to some other unsavory character, whoever it might be. Mm-hmm. And he would have had to make that choice. That would have been more in keeping with Rick. But his whole spiteful thing just didn't, it seemed a little out of character for him because he's too, he's 
he's too non-emotional. His whole goal, like you were saying, he, you only find out how he really feels about you when he's drinking. Yeah. His whole goal is to not have emotions, not have connections, not have anyone um, relying on him, not have him rely on anyone, have him do no one's favors. Now, he does say he's not going to stick anybody, stick his neck out for anybody, but it's not like he made these papers. He just found them. He hid them for a, for a guy who's dead now. He's just now the intermediary. It's not like this is his business where he's sticking his neck out. So th- that's a weird thing I found. I thought about him, but otherwise I do like that character. I like those characters who you find yourself liking, but you realize these are not, he's not necessarily a favorite person either. He's, he's very, you know, he's very dirty. He's got dirty dealings with dirty cops and you know, gambling where you're not supposed to be gambling. <laughs> and, um, and I think Bogart does a great job and Bogart is wonderful at showing those, those sort of emotions when he's able to show his vulnerability, you know, when he first, when he first comes out and sees and hears Sam playing, you must remember this as time goes by and he's furious, furious. And I'm like, I told you never to play that song. So, you know, something's up that there's a reason why he's up, he's upset. And then when he sees her, he goes from angry to even more angry <laughs> to then remembering how heartbroken he is and then to being controlled like, hey, you're in my place now. What can I get you to drink? That's all we're going to do here. You know, really hiding it. And I think he does such a, such a really good job with that. But and the, the, the only other thing I wanted to mention with this is that I don't, I understand that he loves her that he loves Elsa, but I don't understand why. And we'll talk more about this when we talk about Victor Laszlo, is I don't understand what it is he loves about her because she gives him nothing. You know, she's Mm -hmm. so full of secrets. And maybe that's what it is that he loves about her. Maybe she's great in bed and she's mysterious. But (laughs) I feel like, I I just, I feel like for Rick, there would need to be... Get out of my head, Zan. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like for Rick, there would need to be more for him to say, yeah, we're going to run away together and get on the train with me. I think he would need more of it. Yeah, I just know your name, whatever. So, but maybe that is what turned Rick into who he was as the guy who would never do that. But it's like I said, I'll talk about that more, but I, yeah, I don't. His character, I understand that his character is partially is the way it is because of her. But I don't feel like she would have been around because he was enough of who he was before she got there, if that makes sense. Oh, it, it makes total sense. And, you know, Rachel, you, speaking of you, what were your thoughts on Rick Blaine? Yeah, like I said, get out of my head, Zan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this is only the second Bogart movie I've ever seen, that and the Maltese Falcon. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, yeah. His he's so there's so much we don't know about him, and even in doing my research, you know the behind the scenes stuff and the history of this film and the the writers um, were all like, you know they were finishing up the script and they're like, you know we never gave a reason why Rick can't go back to America. And they're like, yeah, I can't think of a good reason. Can you? No. Nah, whatever. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's like we'll just leave it. 
it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm over here like, yes, yes, it does matter. <laughs> mm-hmm. We need more information here. Um, I know that the play this is based on was unpublished, but surely even that source material has more to it that they just did not use, I would hope. Um, but, I mean, if you if you want brooding older gentleman who's had his heart broken and therefore, you know, is not going to even extend friendship to anybody, let alone romantic feelings, um, this is your guy. <laughs> this is absolutely yeah. your guy. Um, but, you know, he and Bergman have pretty good chemistry on screen together, which is interesting considering neither of them wanted their respective roles. And at one point they went to lunch with a, a mutual acquaintance and apparently the entire time they were at this lunch, um, the, the lady said later their entire conversation was, how can we get out of this? wow neither of us want to be in this movie although apparently bogart wanted out of more than bergman and was trying to convince her to i guess be more upset to get on his side so they could both like go to the studio ahead and be like we want out you know um but for whatever reason they decided not to go with it through with it obviously um but, yeah, why does he love her? You know, what is the backstory there? I mean, we get this nice flashback of them running around Paris, you know, in the car and smooching on each other. Meanwhile, you know, the the Nazis are getting closer and closer to invading Paris. And all we get is we've agreed not to ask each other questions. And, you know, he's all like, here's looking at you kid, you know, using that line for the first time. And uh, it's like, did he even know her name at the time? (laughs) 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 You know, or are they just sleeping together just because like, how did they meet? You know, what story did she tell him? Um, You know, because it's obvious that he, at the time, did not know that she was supposedly widowed. Um, He didn't even know that she was married at all. It's not until they're reunited. And she's like, oh, yeah, he's my husband. I thought he was dead because he'd been taken to a concentration camp. And I was left alone. And I needed somebody to, like, warm my bed at night or something. I don't know. (laughs) You know, and why he decided, you know... Again, why is he decided to be so vindictive with those letter, you know, those papers of transit when he knows good and well that as much as she claims to love him, she's also loyal to her husband. And if he refuses to uh, give them the papers, then they're both going to stay, and therefore her life is at stake. I'm like, do you really dislike the husband so much that you would risk her life by keeping them both here in Casablanca? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, great great points there for sure, Rachel. And, and Jesse, what about you? What were your thoughts on, our, on Humphrey Bogart and the character of Rick Blaine? So we know why, you know, Rick is there. He came for the waters. For his health. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in in my mind, 
this film is the story of Rick. It is, it is not a romance. It is, it is his redemption story. When you look at the flashbacks, he is more open. He's smiling. He's laughing. He is, um, you know, we est- they established that he had run guns, that he had been on the, you know, he had been on the right side. And he, mm. you know, now then he says, you know, well, they paid me well. Yeah, but the other side would have paid you more. He right. was a he was a someone who cared about people that cared about doing the right things and I, I throw that did we really need to know how the force worked and did Star Wars get better because we knew how the force worked? I would argue <laughs> it made it worse. It doesn't matter why they fell in love. It doesn't Ooh. matter what why he um, I like to think he killed a man. It's the romantic in me. It doesn't matter why he can't. The reality mm-hmm. is, and if you don't want to accept it, that's fine. They fell in love. Um, I do think they explain very well why she doesn't tell him that she's not meeting him at the train station because she says it wasn't my secret to tell. He was un- he had escaped from the concentration camp and they were keeping it secret because if the Nazis had found, they would have killed him. Mm-hmm. So Rick is so bitter. He had been open. He becomes so bitter because, and like again, you either buy the love story or don't. I buy the love story that he finally had found a soulmate. He had finally found someone he loved to be part of his life, and she betrays him. So he now says, F it. I don't care about anything else. Um, and so he goes, and he is now in Casablanca and does gives no two you know, shoots about anyone. And so that's why he's so angry when Sam plays the song. That's why, you know, he tells Degati, like, I, if I thought about you, I might, you know, uh, despise you, but I don't think about you. You know, with Yvonne, uh, the beautiful language of, you know, where were you last night? Oh, I can't remember that far. You know, <laughs> I can't remember that long ago. Well, how about tonight? I never make plans that far ahead. And And, and I think that, when he does the famous speech, he says, I had forgotten that, and you brought it all back. You remember, I remember what kind of person. And I truly think he, it was out of spite. That's why he says, I'm not going to give you these letters for no matter what. Ask your wife. He wants to hurt her. He wants him to have to ask his wife, why won't he give us his letters? Well, I had an affair with him. And to hurt their marriage. He is nothing about anger and hurt. And so the story to me is the redemption of Rick Blaine. And that is why I love the movie so much. And and this is one of those as Kirk is chirping away. <laughs> um, that, and, and I do think I'll, I'll, I'm going to play the Twin Peaks card, Zan. <laughs> if if you watch Twin Peaks the first time, you go, that's just some weird shit. <laughs> but when you watch it multiple times, you see the the nuances and the story and the imagery, what they're making. I think this is a movie that even though it was made on the studio and, and written by committee, the way this is put together, it is more complex than you see. And it is a very much in-depth character story that the... The tr- letters of transit are MacGuffin. This mm-hmm. is all about him finding himself again. 
Mm, well, very well put there, Jesse. And, you know, we are, of course, I guess, dealing with an actor who is apparently considered the greatest male star of classic cinema by the AFI. And I do believe that in this film, along with other work he has done, you can see why. I mean, I do believe that part of his charm is that he is incredibly enigmatic, as we only get to know snippets and bits and bobs of his backstory, which pretty much just help, you know, to make this character that much more mysterious. Also, we find out that he has always been a major supporter of the underdog, like you were saying, Jesse, no matter what situation. And heck, you wonder how he was able to get into some of the shady dealings he had, like the arms trafficking in Ethiopia, which is huge. Also, he plays, you know, that cynical, hardened man. But we do find out that it is, you know, just a side he puts up for appearances as he's actually a good man at heart, as we see when he helps the Bulgarian couple win at roulette and of course sacrificing his love for Ilsa by letting her and Laszlo escape, as he almost looks at it, in my mind, as the bigger picture of defeating Nazism. And you could see his saloon does harbor some incredibly dodgy characters, like Zan was saying, and keeping corrupt officials like Renault happy not to mention, you know, having Nazis in saloon. And it may make him seem like an opportunist, but I think the bigger picture is he has those people almost on sufferance for the greater good. Kind of like, he reminds me a little bit of Aberforth Dumbledore in Harry Potter, whose bar is kind of open to the Death Eaters, but he's, he's on the side of the resistance. Also, I have to hand it to Rick, as I would have expected fisticuffs at any moment between him and Laszlo, but he holds his ground on that. There, there is, you can feel that tension between the two. And apparently that was also the case in real life as well, as apparently Paul Henry's part, he did not, on Paul Henry's part, he did not get along with either Bergman or Bogart. And he apparently went as far as calling Bogart a mediocre actor. So that tells you how the two felt about each other. But yeah, I really, really enjoyed this character myself. So let's get to our leading lady in a role most folks remember her for. Of course, Ingrid Bergman as Ilse Lund. Funny story, producer Hal Wallace obtained the services of Bergman, who was contracted actually to David O. Selznick, by lending Olivia de Havilland in exchange. So that's an, an, interesting, an interesting exchange there for sure. Uh, Zan, let's start here with you. What were your thoughts on Ilse Lund? Um, Ilse is a, a very, she's, she's an enigma wrapped in a quandary, frankly. <laughs> She's very obviously tortured by herself. She's made these choices. You know, when she's talking, she's talking to Rick, you know, you, I mean, about how she fell in love with Laszlo when she was young and they married and then he had a cause and therefore she had a cause. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and then what she, you know, when she met Rick when she thought he was dead and now she just seems she just seems utterly, utterly terrified of everything going on in her life, and rightly so. She's with a man who is on the Nazis' radar for being part of the anti-Nazi movement, so that's not good. And she knows, and, and you know, when he confronts her, like, what is the, what are you talking, why would, why did nobody know you were married? And she says, because he, that was his idea. If anyone knew that it's the, the whole Superman thing, the reason why um, Peter Parker can't have a girlfriend is because <laughs> immediately once you know that you're that when the villains know that the hero has a girlfriend, that's who they kidnap, mm. not the not the not the hero. They they kidnap the girlfriend. So 
so she's constantly living in terror that somebody's going to find out who she is, who her husband is, where they are, what they're up to, and what that's going to mean for her and him. Mm. So I, I understand that fear motivates a lot of what she's doing, and so does sadness motivate a lot of what she's doing, because she's... I get the feeling that her relationship with Rick is a little bit of a rebound relationship for her, mm. maybe a little, because she, and there are, there are elements of it that, that probably appeal to her that she probably could tell people that she was <laughs> in love with Rick <laughs> rather than not being able to tell anybody that she's actually married to Victor Laszlo. She's, she's in Paris. She's recently, she assumes she's been widowed and she's just sort of looking to rebuild her life in a place that is about to fall down. And she meets, she meets Rick, she falls for him, but again, and you know, and, and Jesse, I'm with you. I understand things don't always have to do things. Things don't always have to mean something, but I, I don't, I don't understand how somebody like Rick, would want to base his life with someone who won't even tell him certain things. They, they don't know each other. They, I feel like they don't know each other enough to do the thing of running away with each other. And that's the thing, you know, they make these plant, this whole no questions things and all of these, they're just trying to have fun. But then when it comes to, we need to run away together it could be a couple of different things. They could be just running away because they both really can't stay in France because France is being invaded. It's a bad idea. Rick is, you know, wanted all over Europe, blah, blah, blah. And so she obviously has a reason to be scared too. So maybe that could be all that they need with each other, but it's more to Rick than that. So I think that's where his pain comes from. And with her... So, Zan, real quick, I'm sorry. I, I just have to... Yeah, no. uh, one of the... You know, one of the questions I ask in uh, my Springsteen podcast is, uh, does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? And many times people say, well, of course, Bruce Springsteen is asking her to get in the car. Of course she will. <laughs> so my go is, it's Ingrid Bergman. Of course he's in love with her, uh, which yeah, is not reality, right? But, I mean, that is yeah. part of the reason why this works is it's freaking Ingrid Bergman who has is absolutely stunning in this movie um, and that what helps sell part of it now you could make the argument yeah. that's a horror like those like what she see in him you know but uh yeah i just wanted to throw that s snarkiness in for a moment <laughs> no and that makes I, and and in the 1940s that's kind of all you needed a date with some nice legs and a pretty face is kind of all you need for a love story according to writers of love stories in the 1930s and 40s but I feel like with, with the Rick character, the one who is, I don't stick my neck out for nobody, the one who knows he's, he's dealt with trouble, the one who's not just, you know, looking for a settled life, I think he's going to need a little, and, and maybe I am comparing him a little too much with Sam Spade, where he's like, it's not the time for this crap, you need to tell me, you need to level with me, you need to tell me what's going on. I feel like that's where Rick would have been with something like this, and I feel like I understand her fear and I understand where she's coming from, but I, and I, I feel that one of the major things about this movie is her conflict between the fact that she does in fact love Tina. She 
loves Victor because she always has, and she probably always will in her own way. But she also loves Rick in that, in that, like you said, Jesse, Shakespearean, this is doomed. This is a doomed relationship, but I still love this person. And so you have, you have that inner conflict with her and you can very much see it. She's so fantastic at playing the desperation. You know, you just constantly see the look of desperation on her face. You know, even when they go into Rick's, she's probably thinking, where the hell are we out in public? What are we doing here? What are, you know, we need to be laying as low as low as possible and getting the hell out of here as fast as we possibly can. Mm. Um, but I still just, there's, there's just that part of me that says when you're in a relationship for a couple of weeks with somebody and the whole premise is no questions, you know, she, she tells him when they have that conversation, you know, how did I get so lucky to find you just sitting here waiting around for me? And she tells him there, the, the answer is there was a man, but he died. She doesn't say who it is. He has no idea who she is. She, he has no idea who Victor is. She just says, I had a man and he died. And if she's going to give him that, I really don't know why we can't just say, yeah, that guy that I said died, he's not really dead. I can't do this. I got to fix some things. Um, tell me where, you know, I'll, I'll try and find you or some, something. You know, I, I just, I feel like she picks what's secret and what's not and what's safe and what's not. And I just feel like as vague as she was with who he was when she talked about him when she was dead, she could have been just as vague when he was alive. <laughs> but um, that being said, like I said, that's, that's part of where my problem with the love story is, is that I don't. Um, and I might just be bringing my own, my own stuff into it, too. I would need, if I'm going to run away with somebody during the war and do unsavory things like whatever they're going to have to do to get out of, of, you know, Nazi occupied Europe, I'm going to need to know a little bit about you. Like, are you, you know, and th that's the, another thing about the forties is that when you have somebody who's vaguely European with an accent, they can be just about anything, you know, Ingrid Bergman being Swedish. It's like, she can play German. She can play Swedish. She can probably play Polish. You know, where is she actually from? Who is she actually working for? Like, if I were Rick at that time, I would need to know that information. Mm. So, but as for Ingrid Bergman, back to back to the character at hand. As for her, I, uh, I really love how she plays the, just, her character can be summed up in desperation. She's desperately in love with the two men. She's desperately afraid. She's desperate to get to someplace safe. And she'll she she has no no way of really knowing what the absolute right thing to do is mm -hmm. and even at the end of the movie i don't know if she knows if she's doing the right thing i think she knows that it's probably not going to be perfection no matter what she does so this is i feel like going with victor or going with going with rick are both equally not perfect for her. I don't want to say they're bad ideas. And believe me, I do not want to sound like Meg Ryan <laughs> either. That it's not a practicality thing. It's more like this is, you know, you're going to be on the run with a guy in one way or another. Which, you know, which one are you picking? And I, and I feel like for her, the choice could be six in one, half a dozen in the other. But her, she might just understand 
the life with Laszlo a little bit better because she didn't have a lot of time with Rick. I don't know. I feel like there is no, there's no good decision for her. No matter what's going to happen, if she goes with Rick, she's going to think about Victor. If she goes with Victor, she's going to think about Rick. And they're going to have, they're going to have difficulties. I mean, until the war is over, they're going to have difficulties. That's at least the one great thing about these characters is that none of them are actually Nazis. So when the war is over, the they're going to prevail. You know, it's not like she's in love with a Nazi and has to testify at the Nuremberg trials that no, he was actually a good guy. I just hit him in my barn for most of it. It's not one of those love stories, but she's, she doesn't have very good choices. You know, it's, it's going to be hard no matter which one she picks. And she has the passionate white hot love for Rick. But then she has that longstanding respect, loved him since I was a girl thing with Victor. So that, that would be, that would be a hard one to choose. You know, that no matter what she does, she's still going to always love the other one too. So I really feel her heartache and Ingrid Bergman makes me feel the heartache of this character. Well, I definitely guess you could say decisions, decisions and, and Rachel, when it comes to you, what were your thoughts on the, on this character? Um, well, this uh, kind of like Bogart. This is only the second Bergman movie I've ever I've ever seen her in. I've seen her obviously in Notorious, mm-hmm. um, and uh, at the at the time when we reviewed that, I'm like, oh, it'd be really interesting to see how I compare that performance to this. I liked her better in Notorious. I think mm. she's kind of flat in this. Um, I you know she's supposed to be other than the. Um, when she goes to confront Rick and pulls the gun on him is like the most like extreme emotion other than the flashback where we see them both just laughing and smiling and you know looking about 20 years younger Um, (laughs) otherwise she just kind of has this look of just you know when they show up to the cafe and you know we can get more into this when we talk about Laszlo, you know, and she's like, you know, should we be here? You know, should we keep more low profile? Like, I think she could have maybe played up the paranoia maybe a little more, Hmm. um, especially compared to some of the things that Laszlo does, uh, which we'll get here to in a a little bit. Um, And then... You know, she, at one point, Laszlo, you know, has to separate from her. And he's like, you know, he's like, you know, I love you. And she's like, your secret's safe with me. And I'm like, okay, that's all you've got. You know, at least try to convince him that you love him. Uh, <laughs> and then when she's with Rick, she's like, you know, you know, how much I love you, how much I do love you. It's like... Come on, girl. What's the passion? She just, she just. I don't know if she's just trying so hard to keep herself emotionally in check all the time to not call attention to herself, and therefore Victor or what. But you know, when it's just her and Rick in a room with no one else, and she still. You know, seems a bit closed off, and then maybe part of that is that 
you know, after seeing him after however long it's been since they've, they've seen each other, not too long, I don't think, mm-hmm. um, that she's just so conflicted that it's easier just to show no emotion than a emotion. I don't know. There's just something about her, her acting in this one that uh, just kind of misses the mark for mm-hmm. me in this. So. Interesting. And and uh, Jesse, what about you? What were your thoughts on the character, on the character of Yves and uh, Ingrid Bergman's performance? So in my mind, and once again, I'm basing this off the dialogue, mm-hmm. where she talks about being a young girl and meeting this very, um, you know, very persuasive man and a hero. And so I actually think of her, she's more in admiration and uh, and her parents are, oh, this is a good match for you, and this is a good guy. And, and she confuses love with this respect and admiration. Mm. And then when she meets Rick, she determines what real love is. Um, and that's why she seems to be more open and, and happy. Um, and then she's crushed because she is married to him, and she is, he is a good man. And she doesn't want to hurt him. And that's why, you know, when she says, you, you needed to be the thinking for us, Rick. She, she loves Rick, but she is, um, she is in love with Rick. And she instead has affection and respect for Victor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why, to me, that's, and I, I think that they both sacrifice like Rick is giving up the love of his life, but she is too, because it's better. Um, because as they talk about, you, you know, he, you, he needs you for your work. Yours what keep him going. And, you know, that great, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your lives. So, you know, and I, I may be overly you know, romanticizing it, but that's how I read the movie and the story is right. that – she has that um, – she's dedicated and loyalty to Victor, but it's not a love. It's not a true, passionate love. Um, you know, I do think it's amazing when Ingrid Bergman died um, multiple years ago, almost every tribute ended with, here's looking at you, kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talked about that that was not in the script – but he started saying that when he was teaching, Bogart was teaching her how to play poker and, <laughs> uh, and you know, offset in between takes. Um, and so that kind of picked up. Um, so from my perspective, that is her place. She's, she's torn between duty and following her heart. Well, yeah, definitely. And, and John, what were your thoughts on this character? Well, as much as we were talking about Rick being a mystery, I think uh, Ilsa is more of a mystery than he is because the only thing we really find out further down the line is that she had braces on her teeth 10 years before they they had met. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, Bergman, I mean, they, they always portray her as being, like, the most beautiful woman in the room whenever they've got the camera on her. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, rightfully so. I mean, she's, she's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, but the the character of Elsa just seemed, I mean, as much as I love the movie, she seemed pretty flat uh, and, and hollow. 
like like I said, we don't know anything about her. I mean, we yeah, we know that uh, yeah, she's admired uh, she's admired Victor for years and years. Uh, like Jesse just said, I mean, yeah, she's not in love with him, but she's dedicated to him. Uh, I think Rick really showed her what having a good time could be, uh, and I think for more reasons than none, I think I think she's more of a like a trophy wife to to Laszlo. And I'm sure they, I'm sure they, they love each other. I'm sure they have have, have a great relationship when they're, when, like when we don't see them. But she doesn't show it. And the oh, well, actually, let me correct myself. She shows it once in the entire film. Is I mean, at that that poignant scene at the end when the Germans are singing the uh, the Watch on the Rhine, mm-hmm. and of course he he stay, he gets the band to play the uh, the was it the uh, Le, Le Marseille? Yep. And uh, I say it, you, yeah, she and you can see it in her eyes that, that at that moment, yes, yeah, she loves him. She's made up her mind right right then and there. But for most of the film, she's just she's almost part of the scenery. I mean, yes, yeah, she has that 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 one scene where she pulls the gun on Rick and you, yeah, you finally see some emotion. But it's like uh, I, mean, I would have loved to have seen more of that or gotten more of a backstory on her. Mm. Well, you know, as you know, the myself as Anna Rachel had actually talked about, you know, the sultry nature that Ingrid Bergman had brought to the screen, Notorious. I think here it's more of the same as she does, at least to me, come across as very sexy and sultry in this film. As and and I have to admit, I'm a sucker for a husky female voice. That's just me. But also, as you were pointing out, John, Curtis's camera absolutely loves her in this. And she also has, I think, these very piercing eyes, which did very much floor me once again, personally. But my raging hormones aside, one could question her choices of having this perceived fling with Rick while Laszlo was interned in the concentration camp and presumed dead. And you do also wonder whether she, you know, as you guys were pointing out, whether she actually really ever loved Laszlo, as she seems so much more alive and fiery with Rick than with Laszlo, where she almost seems more demure and serious. So possibly, you know, to your point, she's more in love with what he stands for. So like folks have with, say, a Che Guevara on one side of the barricade, or even extreme charismatic personalities like, say, even a Hitler or Mussolini, for example. It's almost that uh, cult of personality, if you will. I do think it is almost more that she is married into Laszlo's cause rather than Laszlo the man. As I think her love for him has always been about being constantly on the lam, and it's almost more admiration for his mission and what he stands for than the man himself. And I think, you know, between the two, probably she, she has really sort of discovered what love is through Rick. And yeah, and it was more with this admiration and respect for, for Victor Laszlo, but she's a great character. I, I, I liked her. So let's get to the third element of this triangle. The aforementioned Paul Head Reed as Victor Laszlo, who my listeners might know from another great movie, which I strongly suggest you check out now Voyager. So let's start with you, Rachel. What were your thoughts on Victor Laszlo? Okay, so <laughs> this guy was in a German concentration camp. Mm-hmm. Escaped is essentially like the head of the resistance or whatever mm-hmm. uh, against the Nazis. They've managed to make their way all the way to Casablanca. So they're just a few steps away from getting to America and getting out of Europe and away from away from the Nazis in theory. They the French 
police know he's coming. They've told the Nazis that he is coming. He shows up to Rick's place and reserved a table under his own name. (laughs) And they're just walking about, you know, just showing up. And then people are all like, oh, Victor Laszlo. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. That's who I am. You know all about me. Yeah, sure. That's me. Like, dude, you're on the lam. (laughs) Not subtle at all. It's no wonder they didn't get picked up earlier. You know. How he got out of this entire thing alive is beyond me. Dumb luck, absolute dumb luck. That the that the worst he's walking away from is a scratch on the arm, and a wife that may or may not really love him. But you know, that's his problem. Uh, but just like you know, this guy's got this like aura about him. You know, kind of like. Um, Oh crap! What's his face? Uh, it, uh, uh, I can't think of his name now. Uh, our white hat cowboy. Oh, okay. Uh, Yancy Cravat. Cimarron. Yeah, Yancy Cravat. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's kind of like rolling in like Yancy Cravat, and then I'm like, dude, but not. You've got the French head of police right there. The, the freaking Nazi right there. Several Nazis, including one of them that get, you know you get introduced to and you shake hands with, and you're not concerned at all for yourself or even your wife, even though they don't know she's your wife at the time. Still, she you know she came in with you. She's sitting with you. Therefore, she must know you. She's in the, she's an acquaintance, accomplice at the very least. So you're putting her at risk too. It, you know, it's like, I know you're supposed to be meeting, you know, Ugarte there, but could you keep it on a little more in the down low? <laughs> so he just, he just, he just comes off as just, eh, again, he's just, he's, he's just kind of there just to kind of be the third wheel in this love story between Bogart and Bergman. Um, and at the end of it, he gets the girl anyway. And, you know. They get to go. Assume they make it to America. For all for all we know, they only made it. You know, plane didn't even make it to Lisbon. Yeah. True. (laughs) I guess you could say everything is coming up, Laszlo, because he's just Uh, so lucky. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this guy is wanted by like the entire like Nazi regime, and what's what's you know the irony of it is uh paul and reed was also wanted by the actual nazis yes. <laughs> <laughs> he he was he had uh he had uh, worked in in theater before going to film and had trained in vienna and um you know, as the Nazis were, were coming into to power, he became very anti-Nazi and uh, 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 to the point where he was actually designated an official enemy of the Third Reich. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if it hadn't been for um, uh, actually um, Conrad Veet uh, speaking up for him, he would have been deported or interned in a concentration camp, but uh, Veet uh, was able to, on his behalf, keep him in Britain um, until he could get to the United States. So, you know, the, the, the 
art imitating life <laughs> is and a little so. scary there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that's that's a great story for sure, Rachel. And Jesse, what about you? What were your thoughts on Victor Laszlo? So a um, couple things. One, um, the reason he's walking around so mm. latent is they're in unoccupied France. Like this is nanny nanny doo doo. I'm in a free space. Na 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 na. You can't do anything, which mm. does seem a little foolish, but that's the idea. He that is, doesn't mean he couldn't have had an unfortunate accident. Oh, I absolutely and and kind of like what saying, happened to Agarte, where they're like, well, yes. we haven't decided yet if he yes. committed suicide or <laughs> if he was killed running from the cops. Absolutely, but he is feeling. Like he is the Winchester brothers around a ring of salt. They are un- he is untouchable, and and I think part of it is because they are worried they will make him a martyr, and mm. so I think that's part of it. Uh, the other thing I think that's really interesting, and in if you you read and film and John jump in here, um, almost the complete cast were not uh, were born in Europe, yep. and so and so all of them were very uh, aware of the, the Nazi Germany and the refugees. And so this was part of the reason why so many of these minor characters are so memorable and give such great performances because they felt that this was uh, something that concerned. And, you know, um, I cannot see the scene with Victor making him play the French, you know, anthem. And I, I cry every time I watch it. I, I just, if I pull that up on YouTube, I start crying, mm-hmm. um, you know, tears, just gonna, you know, not, not, you know, hiccup tears, but you know, I get misty. Um, I think that's such a powerful scene. Um, so yeah, I do agree that, um, if there is a flaw in this movie, it is um, he is a stick figure that is there just to keep Rick and uh, Elise away from each other, right? That this is, and he is almost too like um, I I'm the Superman fighting for Nazis, and I've I've been really hard to kill, and he's almost a little too perfect. Right, like he, mm-hmm. oh, I don't want to hear about it. You don't need to explain anything to me. That oh, really? She's sleeping with someone else while <laughs> you're being tortured in a Nazi camp, and you're just gonna let it go? Um, but as we say, it's a hand wave, right? Um, he is his purpose is to have them between that. So I think that's a fair assessment that um, that could be a the least defined and weakest character. Uh, but he serves the purpose um, for me, and um, and then he has some of the best scenes where, like I said, the the when he goes to the band, right when they're doing that, play myself, play myself, and mm-hmm. they look at Rick. I just love that scene. It's definitely a great scene, and we'll actually talk about that a little later on too. And John, you know, what were your thoughts when it came to to Victor Laszlo, or I guess as Jesse's depicting me as the monkey wrench in this relationship? <laughs> it's I, pretty much. I, I I I like the character. He's probably the most dedicated out of any of the cast. I mean, the uh, I mean, as 
as somebody that's been been fighting for a cause all of his life, basically, and he's when you, when he's not there, he's probably he's, I'm I'm assuming he's doing something with the resistance, and that that's that's where uh, and like when Jesse said, uh, uh, but uh, you've got uh, here's 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 Rick who's been sleeping with his wife while he's at a concentration camp, I and mean, I'm sure he. I'm, I'm sure he was probably stewing inside when when Rick says, "Well, you know what? Ask your wife." I mean, I I, I would be, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, he's I mean, he's right on that path. I mean, that's his uh, that's his straight and narrow right there is his cause. So yeah, he's got. Uh, I mean, you know what he's fighting for. You know he's got a lot of a uh, lot of followers, and the fact like like Jesse said, it's uh, it's unoccupied France basically. It's uh, I mean. Yes, anything could happen to them while they're on the streets shopping, but I think it just helps to uh, get the keep the plot moving. True, and and Zan, what were your thoughts on this character? Well, I think that you know everything that Rachel mentioned seems completely bonkers when you look when you look at it from a practical standpoint, <laughs> but it really goes to show you how freaking corrupt this city was, mm-hmm. how corrupt the french cops were and how that in how if there's nazis there they're probably really enjoying ferrari's whorehouse you know there this is not a town of people who are on the level and are there to do the right thing so the fact that laszlo can just walk around and be like hey what's up i'm victor laszlo remember me bitches (laughs) that's that's more of a testament to the corruption of casablanca than it is to him being a little too brazen with himself and and maybe he is and maybe he is being a little more brazen because he is in a place that is not occupied it is more of a um way station for refugees this is a not this is not the nazi place mm. as as is evidenced by that scene with the nazi singing and then he comes in he's like play the marseillaise and then the entire bar drowns out that table of five Nazis. Like it's very obviously that very obvious that they are in the minority. Mm. So, and I'll talk more about the corruption of the French when we, when we talk about uh, <laughs> your favorite. Actor. We, oh, my favorite. Yeah. My absolute favorite. <laughs> so, um, Laszlo, he's. Yeah. Okay. I think a lot of what you guys have said is, is already what I think about him. He is a, the, the purpose of his character, yes, is to be the, the fly in the ointment um, between Elsa and Rick. But also, when you meet Victor and you learn more about Victor, you realize probably what, you know, how... One, one, of, the, one of the quandaries of Ilsa is how does she... Elsa is how does she love both of these men? They're so different. Mm. And you really do get the feeling from Victor that his cause is an extremely noble cause. You know, being anti-Nazi is a great thing, but that's what it's about with him. And so when you're with him, that's what it's going to be about. It's going to be the cause first and then your relationship second. And which is, which is what part of what makes Lazo a good character is that, he's a good guy. He's one of the unflinchingly good guys in this story. So when she meets Rick and she realizes that relationships can maybe have a little bit more equity, 
I think that's that's very appealing to her. As much as she, as much as I think they do love each other in that sort of, we've been together, we've been through things together, we fell in love when we were young. You know, when you fell in love when you're young, that takes a long time to go away. Mm. Um, that lingers for a lot of people, especially when you were in love with someone who was handsome and anti and anti Nazi. It's easy to remember them in a good light. But he's also, and again, I'm not trying to sound like Meg Ryan when I start talking about the practicality of this movie. But he, I think, is very practical. And I think his one flaw, and this is, and I wonder if this is what makes Rick finally decide, okay, fine, the exit papers, you can have them, is because they have that little conversation where Laszlo's basically like, so yeah, did you bone my wife in France? Yeah, okay. I don't blame you, pal. I mean, it's very, he's very understanding. He's like, look, she thought I was dead. She's beautiful. I get it. You know, he's very, very practical. And so I think Bogart realizes he's not going to play on Laszlo's jealousy. You know, Laszlo's not going to be the type of guy that, you know, challenges him to fisticuffs or wants to meet him at dawn for a duel over Elsa's hand because he gets it. You know, he he understands that she thought he was dead. Yes, maybe when you think about the fact that he's probably being tortured in a concentration camp and she's, to quote The Simpsons, playing hide the baguette with <laughs> Humphrey Bogart in Paris, he could, he could probably get mad about it, but he's not going to because that's, he's going to be mad about that. And then when what's going to happen is he's going to come right back to the same spot and everything's going to be the same. And getting angry about it is not going to change the past. And she did think he was dead. So why be mad about what happened in the past? And what good is it going to do me to punch this guy in the face who has the exit papers I've made? <laughs> so he's, he's more about his cause than he is about his love. And I think he does want to protect her the way he says, don't, you know, he pulls the Spider-Man thing. He's like, Mary Jane, I can't be your boyfriend because they'll know and then they'll kidnap you. And he's, he does love her. They do love each other, but it's not, but the passion is for the cause rather than, rather than for her. And as much as she loves that he has that kind of a passion, I think she realizes that it's difficult, that it's not also there for her. Yeah. And that's part of probably what is appealing to her about Rick. So, but with Victor, he's, I, I, I feel like I'm rooting for him so much of the time for the exact same reason why he's probably going to be a pain in the ass husband <laughs> is because of the cause. I'm like, no, no, no. This guy who is not a Nazi, he needs to get out. He needs those exit papers. And I'm saying to Rick, like, Rick, what's the matter with you? He's, he's, He's working against the Nazis. Give him whatever he wants. Give him a cognac. Give him, give him <laughs> everything on twenty-two, and give him the exit papers and whatever he needs. He deserves them. And I think that's a good aspect of this story. That even though he is the one keeping your protagonists apart, keeping the love story from happening, going on to further torture our already tortured star-crossed lovers you're still rooting for Victor. You still want him to be okay. You want him to get out of Casablanca. You want him to go on and carry on his work. And I think eventually Rick figures that out too. You know, he's like, look, this guy, I'm not going to, even with this whole, like, you know, ask your wife 
sort of thing, which, you know, in any other, you know, if you saw that in a theater today, the entire theater would probably be like, oh, that's a bold <laughs> thing to say. But he doesn't even really have to ask her. He's like, yeah, I was gone for a while. You guys were in France together. You guys, you guys were doing it, weren't you? Yeah, okay. I get that. Like, he's not going to play, when he realizes he's not going to play on his emotions, I think Rick, Rick figures out, like, okay, this guy is a solid dude. I need to help him out. Yeah, I think that Rick remembers what kind of person he wants to be. And I do think, you know, it is not easy to be married to someone like Victor Laszlo. I think you're saying that's a really good point, Zan, that, you know, he it's always going to be the cause first. And to be married mm-hmm. to a martyr, to a, uh, a an icon of the, you know, the movement um, can be really, really hard, you know? Right. And you can even, I mean, let's take a real life example. Let's take um, Jane Fonda. You know, she was married to a man who had a cause. And when she finally got something for herself, they got divorced. Well, so... I don't know if you, I don't know if you guys saw the documentary and in, in the about Mister Rogers, and they talked yes. about it was hard to be the sons of Mister Rogers. Mm-hmm. And was, I, you yeah, know, and there even one of his sons like tried to pretend like he he didn't want to tell people he was Mister Rogers. Yeah, because and, when that's it's not his dad, it's Mister Rogers, and people think his dad is Mister Rogers, and that's not true. His dad is Fred. Yeah. So, yeah. Mr. Rogers, lowercase, I guess. But yeah, you know, that, exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, what's going to happen once the war is over? And that's another thing about this movie. This is an incredibly brave movie to talk about this kind of unsavory war stuff. You know, there's yeah. not a lot of, you know, there's there's a, gr- a lot of gray area in this movie, and to have this in, you know, in 1943. The war is still going on, talking about this kind of thing going on. You think anybody who actually is in Casablanca is going, shut up, don't tell them about this stuff. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, you, you know, when the war is over and his cause is not as pressing, what's he going to be like as a husband? Is he going to find another cause? Is he going to be resentful if now it's your time to shine? Um like I said with Jane Fonda, Tom Hayden, you know, he's, he's cause, 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 cause. And she gets on the bestseller list with her workout book and he's resentful. Yeah. And right. I don't know if you guys saw Jane Fonda's uh, biography documentary. It's fantastic. Um, maybe that's going to happen with them. Maybe it's going to be difficult for him when he doesn't have something. Maybe he's going to find it hard to transfer his passion to her from the cause. Who knows? But yeah, it's hard to be married to him. Well, definitely. And you know what, Zan, at this point, I'm going to have to make my mom aware of this Jane Fonda documentary because she's a huge fan of Jane Fonda. So I'll definitely have to tell her about it. But, you know, apparently, you know, looking at this character, according to, to Paul Henry, this role set him up as a stiff forever. And that was just the impression I got when it came to this character as he does seem pretty much emotionless throughout the film. And his reputation seems to almost loom larger than the character himself, almost like Rachel was saying about Yancey Cravat, you know, which you maybe don't see as much in the film, Cimarron, but everyone's like, Yancey is the man. Also, 
you could make the argument, you know, as you as uh, you know, you you guys were pointing out that being a wanted man by Germany, Laszlo could happily have been arrested at any moment by Major Strasser and his men. But I guess poetic license. Also, not to mention, I mean, I did actually look this up. There were no German troops stationed in Casablanca at the time, but I guess there's a little bit of a nitpick. But it did jar a little when it came to that, and it could have made it. They could have made it even more of a thriller had we had that more of a cat and mouse chase between Laszlo and Strasser, which we get a little bit at the end. But it would have been nice to have even more of that. Other than that, you know, he is very much that noble man, possibly too noble. But yeah, I find him just a little bit too wooden for my taste. Um, so let's get to a character that one could say represents possibly the spirit and heart of this film, Mr. Dooley Wilson as Sam. He was actually a professional musician, but a drummer in this case, not a pianist. And his band was apparently a Euro favorite in the 20s before he turned to acting. So let's start with the man who hosts a music podcast. Jesse, what were your thoughts on, on the Sam character? He is um, a wonderful, quote unquote, sidekick, mm. right? Uh, the, he has Humphrey Do- Bogart and Paul Raines have the best dialogue. But Sam has a few of his share, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, especially when, uh, um, you know, Ingrid Bergman is trying to talk to him and he's like, oh, he never comes that early. Or, you know, and just she just has him and she smiles because she's got him tongue tied. (laughs) Um, You know, I know later we're going to talk about music. Mm -hmm. Um, His voice is just wonderful. Um, And, you know, as time goes by, was not an original song for this. Uh, it was had been recorded before. I remember reading, uh, and John may have more information about that. But it was just enough um, that people kind of knew it and had a sense of, you know, nostalgia with it. Um, you know, I think I, I believe that this would have been easy to be a. Um, you know, that Sam is, you know, kind of the, because being African-American, this could have been, um, especially when the time the film was made, this could have been a little awkward. But I think they handle it pretty quick. I think that, uh, you know, Bogart says, Rick says, I'm not in the business of trading people. And he talks about, hey, Sam, he'll pay you a lot of money. Oh, I got time to spend the money I got now, sir. <laughs> so um, I, I just... I think he is he is one of the iconic, you know, play it against Sam is not actually in the film, Mm -hmm. but it is part of our uh, pop culture. And so with that, you know, he's um, a part of pop culture forever. Yeah, it's very, very true. And and John, what about you? What were your thoughts on uh, on on the Sam character? You got me just as I was starting to chew. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. sorry. no, I, I love Sam. I think Sam is one of the cornerstones of Rick's Cafe. Obviously, they came with each other to Casablanca from the uh, from the restaurant they were they were at in uh, in Paris. And uh, Sam ke- kind of keeps him on the straight and narrow, especially when uh, when Rick's had a few too many, uh, and he he kind of puts it into a, like a real world perspective for him. It's like you know what. You want to do do this, this, and this, but 
if you do it, you're probably going to regret it the next day. And why don't you just take care of number one right now? And when Elsa comes to see him, he, he tells her straight, like straight up. He's like, uh, you know what? You're, you're not good for him. And, uh, I'll like along those, along those lines. But, uh, yeah, I just, the songs are, are fantastic. Um, he just lends something to the entire movie that makes you want to see it over and over again. Yeah, very much so. And, and Zan, what were your thoughts on, on Dooley Wilson's character? Um, Sam, Sam is great. And unfortunately, we, one of the things I don't, I can't stand about the Elsa character. Who is that boy playing the piano? Oh, go shut up, Elsa. What is wrong with you? <laughs> um, that, and, and, but again, like I said, I like when we watch movies that have racism in them because it makes, makes us talk about racism and why it makes us uncomfortable now. But Sam and I wish more people realized this back in the 40s and the days of Jim Crow that in all of these movies that we love, um, the black actors are the conscience of the film. Mm-hmm. And you know, just, you know, Sam is the conscience, the way Mammy is the conscience in uh, Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Where everything Sam says is, is totally right. Yeah, she's bad luck for him. You know, if he gets, if she gets mixed up with him, I mean, Sam was there to pick up the pieces after she left him at the train station. Sam was there, you know, he had to, he had to sit with him the entire time they were on the train and listen to him. You know, why did I, why did I fall for that dame? You know, he had to go through all of that with him. He's been with him, you know, essentially, like I said, we have all these, all, you know, no matter how racist we were back in the day, we have so many black characters that are very, are taking, are essentially taking care of the white people really well really yeah. looking out for them and really doing the right thing and trying to get them to do the right thing and i wish we had realized that as a culture if we'd really looked at it and said you know who are the best people in these movies you know who's the nicest person and the sweetest guy in the movie casablanca it's sam <laughs> <laughs> sam's there and uh, you, you almost get the feeling like sam Sam is torn, I think. Sam knows that Elsa's no good for, for, for Rick because she's, you know, it's, you know, hey, Jesse started it with bringing up Twin Peaks, but I'm going to bring it up again. You know, when your woman <laughs> is filled with secrets, trouble's going to happen. And he's aware of that, but he also knows that Rick loves her and if she's here maybe rick can get back together with her and maybe rick can be happy and so when he does play as time goes by and you know he he knows that rick's gonna hear that he knows that rick's gonna come running out and see her you know he Mm -hmm. i mean he could have told her no he could have said yeah there's no way i'm playing that song he's He's going to fly into a rage and tables are going to fall over. There's no, there's no way I'm playing that. You need to get out. I mean, he could have laid down the law with her, but he didn't because I think he kind of wants their romance to work. And, you know, I don't, I know technically 
he sells the bar to Ferrari and mm. makes Ferrari hire Sam, but it really feels like he's sort of selling his staff to Ferrari at the end of it. <laughs> right. Which is which is one thing for you know what's his name his bookkeeper whose name I can't think of at the time right now but but uh, with Sam it's a little weird it feels a little weird at the end um, especially since we know that Ferrari deals in the in in selling and buying of people um, so it's a little it feels a little strange but they do make a point to say no I'm selling you my bar <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish we got more of Sam um, like I said Sam is the conscience. Sam is the caretaker and Sam is, I would have rather, honestly, if we're going to be going off to new places at the end of this movie, would so much rather see Rick go off with Sam than with Louie, but that's just me. Yes. You, you and me both, Zan. And, and Rachel, what were your thoughts on, on Sam? Uh, I think Sam is uh, kind of like a, uh mammy and gone with the wind and it's like oh you're wonderful i like you <laughs> <laughs> you have more personality than a lot of these other characters put together uh <laughs> so, um I, I like that you know for the most part uh you know they don't really point out the fact that sam is essentially the token black character in this movie mm. um yeah, he comes, you know, he's doing his thing, playing his piano and singing and just creating a, a mood and he, I'm just, I'm there for it. So, and I'm so glad that um, while Dooley is not playing the piano because he was not a piano player, he was a drummer. Um, so they actually had someone playing piano right off screen and he and was so obvious it bothers me yeah. yeah he's mimicking their hand movements because i mean he's still a musician so he can somewhat fake it um this is not his instrument of choice um but that person is the one actually playing the music but they actually had considered dubbing Dooley's singing voice um and they decided not to which i'm glad was the case because he's a good singer so mm -hmm. um, and it's easier yeah. to move a piano than it is a drum kit <laughs> yeah <laughs> very true and have, has, have any of you ever actually seen that piano like at the smithsonian or something like that no mm -mm. it's tiny it's like a half-size piano yeah you it, look yeah, at it looks it, like a small one on screen yeah. yeah and when you look at it in real life you're like is this a model and then you realize no, this is what was it, used in yeah. this movie. I don't, and, yeah, I don't know where it is now. It had been sold via auction in 2012. I saw it when I was a kid. There was a traveling exhibit in Cincinnati that had all kinds. I saw like a pair of the Ruby slippers and I saw Sam's piano. Yeah. And I just, you know, I play, I play piano. So I remember seeing that going like, what the heck is this thing? It was surprising. Yeah. And yeah, it, because I yeah. play, watching him not play the piano is hard for me. And the piano that's being played off of screen is a grand piano. <laughs> this is like a little miniature <laughs> upright. I'm like, that's the wrong instrument. <laughs> like that sound is not that. coming out of that thing right my, there. There's no way that piano is going to make that sound. <laughs> yeah, right, sounds so like I'm a little not, tykes I'm piano. Not, 
Yeah, I'm not musically inclined, but even I can tell you that a grand piano and that thing are not going to sound the same. They're not going to sound the same. You yeah, know, you're I, right, I'm wondering if they're. Like- I'm sorry. I was wondering if they they were that small because in clubs, like like he would move his piano from table to table. Yes, he that's did. That's exactly why it was that small. It was right. Put the put the seat on top of it, and that's the thing. A standard piano seat, which is what that is, is you know about half the size of the piano, but that thing fits on top of the piano completely. Mm-hmm. So he just moves it, he just moves it around and is like. Hey, can I play a song for you people tonight? What about a song for the lady? You know, I'm sure he does that sort of thing. Like anybody who, like a fancy restaurant where the violinist goes around or whatever. Exactly. So that's that's what it's for. But it was very interesting to see when I was a kid when I saw it up close. Because like anything you see in the movies, they're always smaller. You know, mm. actors are tiny, so their clothes look like doll clothes. <laughs> uh, yeah, this piano was shockingly tiny when I saw it in real life. I did really want cool. to say that in my in my imagination, um, they go back and get Sam, and uh, they, he's part of the he's he's it's a trio, not a duet. Um, mm. In the my further adventures, in my imagination, Sam stabs Ferrari in his sleep, and he takes over Ferrari's business. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, that's I like that just as much. That's good. <laughs> Got some gruesome headcanon there. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and so, Rachel, did you have any 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 further thoughts when it came to Sam? Um, nope. Okay. This piano sold for six hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Well, there you go. I mean, in my opinion, you know, I will say he is very much the heart and soul of this film. You know, it's not only does he initiate the theme, of course, as time goes by, which is constantly played throughout this film in numerous variations. He is such a good and loyal friend to Rick. And I actually would have loved to have seen him and Rick get plastered and go fishing because I'm sure it probably was not the first time they did that. You know, when he brings it up, like, come on, I want to see the two of them drunk and fishing. We were hilarious. At the same time, like like you guys were bringing up, I was a little saddened that he did not join Rick and Louie on the journey to New Horizons. As you know, we assume he'll be staying at the saloon as resident musician. Or oh, heck, as Zan was saying, we get uh, Sam's Revenge, where he kills Ferrari. And, and you know, <laughs> that, that, now we've just given the Quentin Tarantino a project to work on, definitely. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, he's fantastic. And Dooley Wilson has a Once Upon to- a Time in Casablanca. There you go, Rachel. Got that? You got the title. Um, but yeah, Dooley Wilson is just is just fantastic. Got a beautiful, beautiful voice indeed. So let's get to our villains here, starting with Zan's all-time favorite actor, Claude Rains, as Captain Louis Renault. Let's start with you, John. What did you make of of this uh, French corrupt captain? I loved him. I, I absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 apart from Ferrari, I think he has the his finger is on the pulse of everything in Casablanca. And he knows he knows where to go. He knows like he knows who to talk to. He knows what's going on. And I I I just love that that Rick basically just kind of cock blocks him to uh, <laughs> when when the two uh, the the two refugees are trying to get out of get out of Casablanca, and you know that she's going to sleep with him the next day so he can get get her the visas. But and his reaction is just like, why do you ruin my little romances? And he says, uh, he says well, I've got a beautiful blonde coming in tomorrow. Make sure don't don't let her lose. <laughs> oh, I, I, he's just he's fantastic. I just he's he's one of the characters that that really stands out in the film. And as as much as we've talked about 
some of the main characters being wooden and uh, mysterious. He's right there. He puts it all out on the table. And I think as being the the head of police, I think he has to. But, uh, yeah, I I absolutely adore his character in this film. Even now, when I watch it, I still laugh out loud at most of his lines when he's... uh, when he's him and record going at it. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I definitely hear you on that. And, and Zan, you know, I know, I, you know, of course, as I said, we, we know how much you love Claude Rains and he have another reason to, to love him even more as a corrupt French cop. What did you think of the character of, of Louis Renault? You guys might want to get some snacks. because <laughs> <laughs> I have thoughts. And, no, I mean, no, not really. Yeah. As a, um, Anybody who hasn't listened to our previous episodes, I hate Claude Rains. I hate him, hate him, hate him, hate him. Um, that being said, he is perfect for this. And I said the same thing about Notorious. He is a perfect scumbag. He's like the prototype for James Mason. Like he's the James Mason before there was a James Mason. He's disgusting. And every time you see him in a movie, you think he's going to be disgusting. And when he is, you're like, I hate that guy. Let's watch it again, because I hate that guy. Um, he does. He has some of the best scenes, you know, like like we said earlier, you know, like, I can't believe I I can't believe I discovered gambling in this establishment. Here's your winning, sir. Thank you. I'm gonna have to close you down. I mean, that that's hilarious. And you know, like I like I was saying before, the the real thing about this movie is how incredibly, incredibly corrupt everybody is. And he is absolutely the epitome of corrupt in this. And um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the um, film classics library, uh, which was a series of books in the seventies by a guy named, uh, I've never heard him say it. And I don't know if I'm going to say it properly, but uh, Richard J. um, It looks like Annabile or Anobile. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, but they're, what what uh, he segued that into photo novels. If you guys remember photo novels from when you were kids, um, these are large, larger books, like eight and a half by eleven books of classic films with dialogue on like stills, like shot for shot stills of the movie. These it's thousands of photos in a book that gives you the entire movie, and it was something that was done sort of before VCRs, you know, I, and anyway, the one that I, I have the one for Casablanca. And so I was reading that and there was an interview with Ingrid Bergman in the beginning of this book. And, um, they're very cool. If you ever see them at used bookstores, highly, I highly recommend them. And because they have the, the, the scenes, the photos and the dialogue. So it was sort of a way to relive a movie when you didn't have videotape and it wasn't in theater and it wasn't really run on television. Um, but according to Ingrid Bergman, the French did not like this movie. <laughs> this ran for like, it ran for like a few days in France. And then they they yanked it and um, it was, they didn't have it on television. And they they opened it in like five theaters, like in the late 60s hmm. as a sort of a retro thing. But Politically speaking, this movie does not paint the French in a very good light. Uh, because during the war, the French weren't that great. As if, and to quote, again, to quote The Simpsons, 
as calling them cheese eating surrender monkeys. So, so uh, this he is That's great. The per- isn't that great? Yeah, he's sort of the perfect example of how some of the French were cheese eating surrender monkeys during the war. He is he is just there to you know he's looking out for himself essentially. He's doing everything he has to do to keep his job as the you know as a prefect of police, but if that means sleeping with people to give them exit papers and going to the gambling dens and making sure that the women he wants to sleep with put all their money on 22 and it works. <laughs> um, you know, and that's, that's another thing you see that, you know, Rick's a decent guy is that, you know, there's this couple that needs to get out. He's like, put all your money on 22, do it again. Now get the hell out of here. Um, he's, you know, Rick is at least using his powers for good sometimes. Mm. Um, but Louis is using his powers to, you know, get laid and get rich, and it's all about him. He's he's a disgusting character. He's <laughs> everything bad about the French during the war, and therefore he's perfect to be Claude Rains. He's perfect, and again, he is that character that is hilariously hateable. He and I, you know, you know, far be it for me to compliment Claude Rains, but when Claude Rains plays an antagonist, and I kind of consider him an antagonist in this movie because he's he's not necessarily against them, you know, he's he's not the Nazis, but he's not helping anybody either. He's you know, he's that he's that kid that's like, oh, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. He's just in your freaking way. And you just want to swat him to the side. Um, but I think he does. And, and again, like I said, this being 1943 and France, like technically being an ally <laughs> to have this character as a commentary on what the French were up to during the war, I think was a very brazen way of writing a character but you know Claude yes you've got a slimy character that's supposed to like be able to infiltrate decent society but still be slimy Claude Reigns is your dude man he's, <laughs> he's so terrible and so wonderful at being terrible he's 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 perfect in this and even at the even at the end you know the whole this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship it's it, 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 it's not going to be any any semblance of loyal to you. What the heck is wrong with you? You know, it's this is Louis is going to be your friend until you are no longer of any use to Louis. Yeah, and you know, yes, he does the right thing in the end by you know, you know, helping them out and making sure that they get away when they need to, and saying like, oh yeah, they're on that plane. You just missed them. Sorry about that, guys. Um you still know that that was just because it benefited him, not because it benefited anybody else. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. I suppose it almost might represent, you know, that the uh, the Vichy French, obviously, who were um, supporters of the, the Nazi regime, of course, which they established right. in, in France at the time. But yeah, and you've I, got that great scene. You've got the great scene with him where he picks up the bottle of Vichy water. Exactly. And then, Drops the and trash, then puts yeah. it down. Yeah, and then puts it down. So you know he's realizing, you know, maybe this is not going to be good for me in the long run. <laughs> but that, that's, I, I do love that scene where he picks up the Vichy. He's like, yeah, no, we're not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, that was definitely a great nod indeed. And, and Rachel, what were your thoughts on, uh, on Captain Renault? 
Um, <clears throat> he made my head spin. <laughs> I could not figure out whose side he was on. He just like kept going back and forth, and he'd be like, "Oh, you know, the the you know, he'd keep going and introducing himself to somebody in in Rick's cafe, and then get up and walk away." And I kept leaving his drinks behind. <laughs> he'd be like, "Pour," you know. He'd ask the waiter for a drink. He'd be like, "Put it on my tab," and then he wouldn't even drink it, yeah. and he'd walk away from it, Never and then free. he'd walk another. <laughs> like first of all waste of good alcohol yes uh, second of all waste of good alcohol but um <clears throat> but uh yeah no i just i could not figure out whose side he was on it took like to the i think the, pretty much the end of the movie they'd be like oh he's just on whatever side he thinks he's gonna benefit from mm-hmm. the most he's one of those people um, which, you know, looking back now makes things make way more sense. Uh, but at the time was just like, dude, <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Um, so, but it, it, I mean, it's a good performance from, from Reigns. Uh, apparently the, uh, the, the screenwriters objected to his hiring at first. And then after they, they saw it later and they're like, we were so wrong. He was so great in that role. <laughs> um, so, um, it, I mean, Reigns is just, he's just good at being that slimy, no good, you know, again, notorious Mr. Smith goes to Washington you know, those movies where it's just all like, you're not trustworthy at all, are you? Um, and every time I hear his, his name, all I think about is the the opening song from Rocky Horror. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Now, now I've got that in my head, Rachel. You know, <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, for sure. No, now I want to go and listen to the Rocky Horror Picture soundtrack, which I says I probably will do after this podcast. And Jesse, when it comes to you, what were your thoughts on Claude Rains's character? You know, as I mentioned, he has great dialogue, um, and he plays him slightly um, a cinnamon, right? Just slightly, just a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, and I and I love that. I. I you know, he's French. Yeah, and I love one of those great lines, right? Uh, what is Rick? If I was a woman and I was not around, I would be in love with Rick. You know, oh, so, don't you just love how like he has to get like the narcissism even into that yes, comment? Yes. Um, I once again because I am a product of Walt Disney movies growing up. Um, I view the end when he looks at the Vichy water and was pouring it and then he throws it in the trash can is the idea that he knows he's been playing both sides of the fence too long. And now then it's time to make a decision that they need to fight against the Nazis and to do their version to free France. Um, And that's why when he and Rick are going off, that's, that's, I think that's what that to me means that image. Um, I, I do know that with maybe we need a bigger boat, <laughs> uh, but if not gambling, I am shocked to find gambling is a dialogue that I have used in my business life uh, more <laughs> than I can ever imagine. Um, yeah. Anytime it is something so obvious and someone says, 
wow, I didn't know people were going to call out sick. Yes, I'm shocked. Gambling, there's gambling here. Uh, you know, um, you know, Donald Trump is not trustworthy. Yes, I'm shocked. Find gambling here. You know, it just and so I, I say that uh, line all the time. Um, he it it is amazing. Um, you know, and, and the snarkiness, right? We'll be there at six. I'll be there at ten. <laughs> you know, I'm very happy for you, but it is a little strange. Um, so yeah, it just he is a wonderful cad. Um, he he later joins the redemption and a trail, and so just once again, he has a very interesting character arc because he he flat says, right? I um, I will wait and see what happens. You know, if if uh, if this becomes occupied, we'll see what happens. And so, um, just a wonderful guy. Yeah, very much so. And you know, Zan was mentioning that the French don't really get a great depiction here. The Italians don't get great depiction either. I will get to that uh, when we get to our next to a few to a, ne- a characters shortly. But when it comes to you know my thoughts on on uh, Captain Louis Renault, he is literally the quintessential and stereotypical example of the corrupt cop. As if you know, some folks may accuse Rick of being an opportunist. This guy is the opportunist par excellence, as he will literally bend regardless of where the wind blows. And, you know, to, to Zan's point as well, the beautiful friendship that him and Rick may establish following the events of this film may very well be one where Rick will have Renault's number at every turn. And he does tend to lean more towards the villainous side, but at the same time, he won't stick his neck out for either side as long as it benefits him. I mean, I do think that him and Rick are frenemies more than anything else, and some could almost consider him a voyeur of sorts. As You know, you were saying, Jesse, he won't intervene. He just sits back and watches these major events and then just kind of lets the corruption and craziness around him just carry on. And then if he gets has a stake in it, he will kind of reach out and grab it. Though he does have that major stain of letting Ugarte get caught in order to impress the Nazis. So I was like... That ain't cool, bro. But yeah, Claude Rains is fantastic when it comes to playing villains indeed. And before we do get to the Nazis, I would like to give a special mention to a character who may actually have Renault beat in oiliness, and that is Sidney Greenstreet as Signor Ferrari, whom our listeners might know from Maltese Falcon, Passage to Marseille, and was the voice of one of my dad's heroes on radio, Nero Wolf. So, Zan, let's start with you. As you had mentioned him quite a bit, what were your thoughts on Signor Ferrari? Uh, Ferrari is a fantastic character because he he shows you how bad Casablanca really is, you know, how corrupt it actually is, Mm. without it having to be Rick that shows you that. You know, like I said, Rick's got gambling, Rick's got booze, Rick has people using his bar as where they meet to get their illegal papers or to play a loaded roulette table to pay for their illegal papers and maybe meet the girls that they're going to sleep with to get their illegal papers. But that's not what he deals in. You know, he's just like, hey, I just run a bar. Whatever people do here, whatever people do here. But Ferrari is dealing in everything. <laughs> <laughs> like at the beginning where he's talking about, you know, how much for Sam? which already problematic 
And he says, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not in the business of selling human beings. Like, ah, oh, you should be. It's pretty lucrative here in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because you know he's dealing in human trafficking. You know, he's his place, the 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 blue parrot is his place, right? Is that the name of it? Yeah. I don't know why I'm blank- I'm, I don't know why I'm blanking on it for a second. Um <laughs> I keep thinking the blue dolphin. I'm like, nope, wrong movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, the blue parrot, you know, if you go in there and you say, hi, I have 50,000 francs. I want some opium and a teenage boy. He's going to get it for you. <laughs> he's, he's horrible. And Sydney green street. I, I love, I've been, you know, one of my all time favorite movies is the Maltese Falcon. It's my father's favorite movie. So I've seen it a gajillion times. And these two characters, um, Casper Gutman and Maltese Falcon and Ferrari in this movie are very similar. That mm. all they are are jovial men who, who deal in the absolute worst possible things you can possibly think of. So his character, like I said, he seems, he seems like kind of an auxiliary character at first glance, but he's very, very necessary for you to see how seedy Casablanca is without having, without having it to be Rick. That is that guy. Cause Rick could very, very easily be Ferrari. Like if he stays in Casablanca yeah. long enough, he could become Ferrari. And even, you know, even Ferrari, he keeps offering to buy Rick's business and, you know, hire Rick's staff because he knows that this isn't Rick's thing. Like this is a, you know, this is the lion's den of horrible, horrible goings on in the world. And, you know, Rick, you know, Rick can run a bar, but I, I think he knows Rick doesn't have the stomach for anything else that's coming through Casablanca. So I think he knows like, hey, you're not going to be here forever like I am. So when you're ready, sell me your place. So I, I like that he's there as a way to show you. The, as a way to keep Rick as our protagonist, because. If Rick's business was the same as the Blue Parrot, we wouldn't like Rick as much. We wouldn't be rooting for him as much as we are. And I love Sidney Greenstreet. You know, he his I want to say the Maltese Falcon was like his first movie uh, because he was a stage actor forever before that. And he he just brings again that sort of lovable, disgusting guy, like a. Not that these are lovable characters, but that he has that Claire Quilty kind of quality. Mm-hmm. That sort of seemingly innocuous, seemingly nice seeming person who underneath it all is dealing in the worst things you could be dealing with. And Sydney Green Street is fantastic at that. And and that's a great comparison. And and Rachel, what were your thoughts on on Mr. Ferrari? Um, yeah, I mean, he, I I know him from the Maltese Falcon, and it's almost like he just walked from one movie set to the other. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and again, he's looking at Humphrey Bogart, and if, if I was him, I'd be like, wait a minute, what's his name in this? <laughs> uh, so, uh, but yeah, he's just your, your prototypical guy you know guy who works in the you know knows everybody and everything in the black market and can get you whatever as long as you're as long as you can pay for it type of 
character and um you know good for rick for you know getting out of casablanca and um finding a a a new goal or lease on life or whatever but i i hope that he that um you know selling selling his business to to senor ferrari ferrari doesn't uh, totally take rick's cafe and run it into the ground now because <laughs> it seemed like a nice establishment yeah <laughs> very very true <laughs> and and jesse what were your thoughts on on this character you know it's a very small part mm. but um played wonderfully you know the whole joke about every time i have a drink i'm short you know when the uh, mines or my supplies are uh, delivered, and uh, don't forget you owe two cases of cigarettes or whatever. And I will, I will look forward to paying myself. Um, the and and I I love the line right. Like I don't know why I'm telling you this because I have no way to this to benefit me. But you know there are two letters of transit. Uh, you know, just a great character um, in in a just a minor role, but a important role. And I think you guys said it really well. It he kind of shines up that Rick is is a is a little shady, but mostly he's trying to run an you know he's an honest barkeeper, right? He I'm just running a bar, and uh, there may be a little bit of crookedness going on. But overall, uh, you know, I'm just trying to run a saloon and uh, till that pesky woman from my past shows up. Oh, yes, indeed. And and John, what, what did you think of this character? Well, like Jesse said, with uh, for, for a character that you don't see a whole lot of in this movie, and he really does make a pretty big impact. Uh, I mean, from the get-go, you can tell that he and Rick have a pretty good uh, business friendship. I mean, they're both both bar owners. Uh, obviously, we don't see the what like we don't see the blue parrot at all. But I mean, we can have we we have ideas of what goes on there. Yes. But you see Ferrari in Rick's a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, it just uh, like like I was said with uh, with Renal, I mean, he's got his finger on the pulse. I think. I, I think Ferrari has his hand in the pot and he seems to be involved in almost everything that goes on in Casablanca. And, uh, and the, the thing that I mean, this, I'm going to bring up my obligatory doctor who reference he really reminds me of Dorian Maldivar. Yep. That's exactly where I was going to go. Well said, John. I, I just, there's another black market, uh, bar owner. He can get you what you want. He just for a price. And, uh, I mean, Obviously, he's been trying to. I mean, Ferrari's been trying to buy Ricks for a while, and like you said before, I, I would really hope that after the sale was made, it stays the same. It doesn't doesn't turn into another blue parrot. But yeah, I I, I enjoyed the character. I, it brought uh, brought more spice to the uh, to the cast. It definitely did, and you know, and uh, in fact, I was wondering whether one of you guys would actually bring that comparison up, because you know, because I was actually thinking of, I literally went to Dorian Maldivar, who is mm-hmm. of course played by Simon Fisher Becker in Doctor Who, and uh, I wonder whether that character may have been inspired by this one, as 
that is what he literally is, because Signor Ferrari is the Dorian Maldivar of Casablanca. I just like Dorian, he is the kingpin of the black market, and he's just as oily as our oily blue friend. So I'm like, yeah, it's it was that's where I meant went to immediately. I actually felt funny enough when it like when it comes to Dorian Maldivar. I actually felt dirty every time Ferrari was on screen as the man just reeks snake oil from his presence to the voice, which in other contexts may actually be very pleasant to listen to as he did a lot of radio work. But here I just felt like I had to constantly wipe my hands from the grease this character exudes. I mean, I think that just like Renault, he very much represents that op- opportunistic spirit that pervades Casab- Casablanca in this film. And we also see this, I guess, somewhat also in the pickpocket, who's briefly played by Kurt Bois. But at the same time, I enjoyed any interactions that Ferrari and Rick had. And it kind of shows, like you guys were saying, the contrast between the two. It's almost like... You know, what would Bruce Wayne have become had Bruce Wayne could become the penguin? It's almost like Bruce Wayne and the penguin here kind of deal because they're both in the, you know, wealthy people, but one uses their wealth for good and the other not so much. So I kind of got that vibe, vibe also. But yeah, the Sydney Greenstreet is amazing, has a beautiful, beautiful voice. So let's get to the Nazi in the room. And this would not be the last time he would play a Nazi or a villain. Conrad Veet, of course, is Major Heinrich Strasser, whom has been in tons of movies, among these The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, The Man Who Laughs, The Thief of Baghdad, and many, many more. And ironically, as Rachel was actually pointing out earlier, he was also a refugee fleeing from the Nazis with his Jewish wife. But he frequently played Nazis in American films. It, it kind of makes me think, think of a little bit of uh, Christoph Waltz who played the notorious Hans Landa in Inglourious Bastards, whose son is actually a rabbi in Israel. So it's kind of like that situation. But fun fact about Conrad Veet, he was the highest paid member of the cast, despite he's billed secondly in this film. So let's start actually with you, Rachel, you know, since you actually brought him up a little bit. What were your thoughts on Conrad Veet and uh, Heinrich Strasser? He makes a good Nazi. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's it's funny because yeah, like you were saying, Veet was a, a, a he was German and he was a refugee because his wife was the wife was Jewish, um, and uh, but he he played the Nazi in this movie and continued to play Nazis um, <laughs> at least during the war because he thought that. It would help the war effort. Hmm. Uh, I guess I'm not sure exactly where his like train of logic was supposed to be going with that, <laughs> but uh, I guess it's like if I play the Nazis, so people really hate them, then they'll hate real Nazis. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Um, Reverse psychology, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, he just. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, I was, I was a little concerned, <laughs> um, it, especially towards the end of the movie there when uh, uh, Renault, uh, you know, uh, fakes calling the, you know, the, the airport and actually calls him instead, uh, or at least calls the, you know, the, 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 the Nazi office instead um, and tips him off. Um that I was like, oh, are they going to get out? And, you know, then they're all standing around talking and Rick's giving his speech. And I'm like, the Nazis are coming. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, then they have that showdown and Rick shoots him. And I'm like, yay! So, um, especially after what's been happening, especially yesterday, I'm like, yay! Justice against the Nazis! Uh, So the timing of this was serendipitous, to say the least. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, I mean, just the, you know, the... The the one scene that really got to me is that like dueling anthems. Yeah, I I cared more about that than this love triangle between our three leads to see, you know, the germ. You know, they've got these Nazis hanging around Rick's bar because Rick is all like, you know. It, yeah, he does. He will tell people their money is no good, but for the most part, he's like, you know, your everybody's money is legal tender, so please spend it, give it to me. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, they get comfortable hanging out, and they decide to, you know, abscond Sam's piano when he's not there and start singing this this German anthem, which they actually wanted to use an anthem that was actually used by the Nazis, but it was copywritten and they didn't want to either one get sued by the Nazis for using it and, or two have to pay the Nazis royalties. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why they went to watch on with the watch on the Rhine. Yes. (laughs) It's like, I, I can understand that. Um, but you know, for them just to break out in song, knowing full, you know, probably knowing full and well that Rick's Cafe tends to be full of people who are only in Casablanca temporarily, and are trying to move on to some place where the Nazis aren't, and they're essentially, you know, sticking their middle finger up to all these refugees like hey we're here and we're gonna burst out into song in the middle of this cafe so uh yeah when uh the the rest of the crowd gets brought in to to sing the french national anthem and uh you know kind of drown them out um literally and figuratively it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, even more so when you see some of the people in the crowd while singing the French anthem have tears in their eyes. And a lot of them legitimately were crying because they themselves were refugees. Um, a lot of the extras on top of some of the named actors that we've talked about who were who had fled from the Nazis in Europe um, were also uh, fresh to American soil because they had had fled Nazi-occupied Europe. Um, And the movie studio was like, oh, we've got all this fresh blood for extras now. Um, But it really got to people filming that that scene because they were, it was a lot, I think it was cathartic in a way for them to um, have this moment of the people standing up to the Nazis even if it isn't a movie, um, to kind of have that moment to be like, no, screw you Nazis. You're not going to overpower us. We are going to overpower you. 
Well, see, that's why you're a wonderful co-host, Rachel, because you were just reading my mind when it came to to that battle between Watch on the Rhine and the Marseillaise, because it's, it's it, it was definitely what I wanted to also discuss when it came to this the, the character of Strasser as well. So, Jesse, when it comes to you, what were your thoughts on Heinrich Strasser and your, you know, if you want to share your thoughts on the dueling singing battle of Watch on the Rhine and the Marseillaise? As I say, that scene makes me tear up every time. Mm. I, I just think it is so powerful. And and once again, the way it's directed, right? You see cuts of the, as they're singing, and he is, um, you know, Victor is becoming more, he's singing with such passion. You know, and what's funny is, right, he's Czechoslovakian. So I always get confused, like, why isn't he so passionate about you know, the French, but because it is unoccupied France. Hmm. And, you know, you see, you know, the guitar player and Yvonne, you know, all singing. And, and um, there is this undercurrent. And, and I love, um, you know, Strasser saying, look, if he can do this in a saloon, we've got to get him gone. We've got to get rid of him. Because he's just too dangerous to be, um, you know, left. You know, we can't let him be free. We can't kill him. We, you know, the only thing we've got to do is capture him, find a reason to arrest him, and let's get him back into a concentration camp. Um, yeah, I, I agree with, you know, as Rachel said, he's a great Nazi. Um, you know, it, it, he plays this perfectly. Uh, the arrogance of, you know, Another favorite scene, and I say this a lot because there is so I, – I, I adore this movie so much um, – when, you know, Major Strasser is interrogating Rick and, like, make it official, you know? And, like, are my eyes really blue, you know? And just this, this – you know, uh, how would you feel about uh, invading, you know, Paris and then, you know, France and – you know, Casablanca and then New York. And he goes, there are parts in New York where you may not want to go. So he is a great villain. Um, I remember the first time watching this and actually, you know, the probably the second time, because I didn't remember as much, um, you know, the idea and of, oh my gosh, they're going to get away. And, you know, this, the story, right, is they weren't sure how they were going to end this. Sure. And uh, the Epstein brothers looked at each other kind of, I guess, at a stoplight is the legend and round up the usual suspects. Uh, they both said it to each other. And, you know, whether that's true or not, I like to think it is. And that's how they came up with this ending. Um, and it's absolutely, you know, I know we're going to talk about it later, but it's just a perfect way to end this. Uh, mm. So he's he's a great villain. And, um, you know, unfortunately, or fortunately, he gets his due. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and John, you know, what were your thoughts on this character and on our battling songs, if you will? Well, I don't think you'll ever hear as many people as us right now saying great Nazi. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he, he did, I mean, to, to play, to play the, the, the role, yeah, he did a really nice job. I mean, he's extremely believable as a, uh, as a Nazi. Uh I mean, it's just there's there's characters and there's there's major characters and and he he was just kind of in between and obviously he had a lot to do with uh, for for his cause but uh, 
I didn't really, uh, and he was just, he was just a Nazi, Nazi general. It's, uh, to, to me, it's, uh, you, you get that, uh, you get the, at the end where he gets killed. That's the classic Captain America takes out Hitler with the punch type scene. Uh, but the, uh, yeah, for, and for, for most part, I just, he was just another, uh, another character in the background of me. Um, the, uh, the dueling anthems though. And like Jesse said, it brings tears to your eyes. Um, there's only one other, one other scene from, from something that, uh, that does that for me. It's so this one from Casablanca and on, uh, the end of, uh, Vincent and the doctor in, uh, from doctor who, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I know it sounds like Rachel's the, uh, kind of like the trivia person on your, uh, for, for your group. Um, uh, but yeah, she had a dead on with, uh, yeah, most of, most of the extras were refugees. I mean, the, the girl who played Yvonne, uh, Madeline LeBeau, she was, she was a refugee as well. So they, every time I read something about that, they're like, those tears, those are real. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not sure about, uh, Chiquita banana lady, the guitar player, but, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. That, that's, that's who I always think of when I see her. It's the, the Chiquita, the Chiquita banana lady. But, uh, no, it's, uh, that's, it's one of the most powerful scenes in, of all time in movies. I mean, you can't, can't really put a whole lot up against it because it's going to get you, uh, young or old, uh, whether you're I mean, from one side of the pond or the other, it's uh, it's very touching. It uh, it really uh, really shows you who the uh, who like who the power belongs to at the end of that. Very true. And and Zan, what were your thoughts when it came to this character and that uh, that uh, memorable battle of songs? Yeah, this is an interesting character because you know, like we've talked about already, this is unoccupied. French territory where the Nazis aren't supposed to be. So the fact that there are some there is just, again, nobody who's there is up to any good for anything, anywhere, anybody, any side. So the fact that he's even there is just shady to begin with. You know, I always think about his character and I wonder like, is he there so he can maybe get back in some good graces with the Nazis? Like what, horrible thing did he do that he has to be in Casablanca where he's not even supposed to be. So I think that's, that's an interesting thing about it. And again, like, you know, we've, we've talked about it with, you know, Conrad by being a refugee and the fact that he did a movie like this when he had, you know, he, he had, he is a refugee and the Nazis are still in power when this movie is made in this movie. And unfortunately, he didn't live much longer after this. Um, he, it, I, I love the concept that he does play the Nazi in this because it is a, it is a major middle finger to the Nazis that you have somebody portraying them that escaped from them, like they are obviously beatable because here is this guy alive and well with his Jewish wife in America portraying them as the as the villains and you know i'm sure that was going through his head it's like i'm gonna play a nazi who gets defeated so the world sees that nazis are defeatable and i think that takes a lot of bravery because at this time you know we still had a couple more years of the war we had no idea how much longer this was going to go on if the nazis had made it to the united states and been able to do anything you know, Hollywood would have been the first place they went because Hollywood was all about bashing the Nazis. So 
it took a lot of bravery and a lot of courage to, to play roles like this for him. And the, the scene with the, with the dueling anthems is, you, you guys have all already said it, it's extremely powerful. The, the first time I watched it, I, it, it reminded me when, when the Nazis start in on it, you know, when they just start acting like this is just another place where they run things and everybody's going to be intimidated by them and, and afraid of them. I just was like, Oh God, is this going to be like tomorrow belongs to me? If you guys are fans of the movie cabaret where mm-hmm. we start out. Oh, with yeah. The, the, the picnic. Yeah. The young yeah, boy singing you don't realize and it back. in that scene that it's a Nazi singing it until the, the until it pulls out far enough. And you see him in uniform. Right. <laughs> it's, you start up with a close up on this young you know, young blonde boy, and he's singing this song that seems very hopeful. And then the camera pans back, and he's in the Nazi uniform, and then everybody else starts singing. You're like, "Oh God, no!" So, and you're worried that that's going to happen in this one too, but it doesn't. And the fact that it doesn't is so wonderful that even if you know Casablanca is a hive of scum and villainy, at least even Casablanca hates the Nazis. So it does really show you that these are beatable people and that it is, it's almost like this, it's almost like this is Casablanca's version of Can You Hear the People Sing? Mm. It's it's the people who were going to come together and beat the living crap out of this, out of this group and beat them back down to the Stone Age or back down to South America, whatever, (laughs) whatever legends you want to believe about Nazis. Um, so it's a it's a wonderfully hopeful scene about it, and the the fact that they they were refugees as the extras and as some of the actors is just a you know a credit to Michael Curtiz and his conscientiousness about it. I think to mm-hmm. to, to do that and to and to show that sort of f you to the Nazis. It's like these people ran from you, and now I have them in my movie, which is going to go down in history as one of the greatest pieces of American cinema. Amen to that. I mean, I suppose, you know, thinking, you know, because you guys brought it up a lot, Notorious being pretty fresh in my mind and also, you know, see colored, I suppose, also by what happened yesterday. I could have seen, you know, that this character would fit right into the group of Nazi spies we had seen in Notorious and we talked about there. And I can see why. He was often cast as a villain both in the silent movie era and the talkies, as just like Christoph Waltz in uh, Inglorious Bastards. He has that presence and gravitas of evil and that blitzkrieg killing efficiency that is inherent you know, to many well played on screen Nazis. And I did find it ironic that the Nazis killing efficiency was questioned in this. As when, La- as when Laszlo says something along the lines of good luck on killing that fast, I was like, um, yeah, they did that. Granted, okay, yeah. maybe maybe the, the, the whole thing of the Holocaust had not come out just yet. But I was like, obviously, I was thinking of that. So I was like, um, yeah, it happened. I mean, I will, but at the same time, I will not deny that a satisfied smile was playing on my lips when he gets his. And he is such a menacing character throughout. And that whole, the watch on the Rhine and the Marseillais scene is just beautiful. I mean, I actually got goosebumps just watching it and thinking about obviously the horrors of World War II and what these the, the Nazis did. And it was just so beautiful. And the tears in everybody's eyes is just 
I, w- I was sincerely moved by that scene for sure. So let's look at then how this movie ended, guys, where ostensibly, you know, of course, Laszlo and Ilse fly off to into the blue yonder while um, uh, Rick and uh, Renault kind of walk away into the blue yonder, apparently establishing a new friendship. So, Jesse, starting with you, you know, you'd, you'd teased this a little bit. So were you satisfied with the way Casablanca ended? I did, and I think... Um for people who say, well, I always want a happy ending, and I do. I, you know, I'm someone who usually wants a happy ending, but this works. And to me, this was a happy ending. And, and this is such an iconic ending. Uh, the parodies of, you know, uh, Bogart's speech um, is everywhere, and, um, and it is iconic. Um, and I... I just love the way this movie ends. I love the whole concept that these guys are going to go out and uh, fight the good fight. Um, and so I'm, I'm pleased with it. Um, I do wonder, um, you know, sometimes, like, is that really enough money to pay and everything? But uh, I, not, I don't get into too many details. So, yeah, I love the ending, and I think this is, as I said, this is one of – my favorite films ever great and and john were you satisfied with the way this film ended i i really was and after seeing a few documentaries uh they basically put the correlation of uh basically rick being the united states and this is him getting into getting into the war getting the united states involved and uh i i don't think they even, even if you would have put somebody different if like or if adding adding sam into it i think it wouldn't have been as as memorable mm. uh but yeah it's uh i mean just the two of them going off together it's just it's it's the basically rick is the the cynicist turning into the idealist basically just getting in getting involved and calling it uh quits with what his life was and getting involved now true and and zan you know what well, i know you've you've uh, you know voiced your opinions very strongly throughout this review were you happy with the ending I'm very happy with this ending, and I agree with with John completely that it is, you know, he goes from not wanting to stick his neck out for anybody to realizing that there's somebody worth sticking their neck out of, out for, and that somebody is the rest of the damn world. And you know, I like that. I like that Rick figures it out, and he's, and he's right. the The problems of two people do not amount to a hill of beans. It's there's there's bigger things here than the two of them being in love with each other, and he understands that, and he knows that. And like I was saying before, I think she is going to daydream occasionally about the grass on the other side for either relationship she chooses. He is right. If she doesn't get on that plane, she's going to regret it at some point in her life. Mm. But. I think she, I think it would have been the same way if she had gone with Rick. I think she would have been, she would have wondered like what would have happened if I'd stayed with Victor. So I, I feel like he understands that at least going with him, going with Victor, Elsa has a chance to fight the good fight with somebody who is established as knowing how to fight the good fight. Whereas mm-hmm. Rick is now going to try and learn how to fight the good fight. So either either decision is equally good and equally bad for Elsa. So I think he realizes that she doesn't need to be with him on his own personal journey. Um, 
the only the only thing wrong with this ending is that poor poor Rick's got to get stuck with Louie. <laughs> <laughs> but it redeems Louie a little bit, also. So it, it's you know, like you were like you were saying, Jesse. People want a happy ending, and while this movie does not have a happy ending for the romance that you're rooting for or that you're supposed to root for throughout the entire movie, this movie, the end of this movie, is just nothing but redemption. So I agree. This does, in fact, have have a happy ending, and when we're thinking about how the filmmakers weren't sure how they were going to end this movie, that they were just making, you know, they said when they called up Ingrid Bergman and said, Hey, you know, Curtis called her up and said, Hey, I've got this great script for this movie, Casablanca. You need to be in it. It's going to be amazing. She met with him and she's like, Hey, where's the script? He's like, well, okay, I don't really have a script, but there's this movie. It's Casablanca. I'm going to make it. It's going to be awesome. And they didn't quite know what to do, but I think they are, I think they sort of put themselves in the head of, in Rick's head to end this movie, that this is what needs to happen. Rick needs to figure out how to be his whole genuine self again. And sometimes that means not being the selfish guy and, you know, to be, to be with her would to be the selfish guy. So I, yeah, I think this movie has a fantastic, fantastic ending. Um, It is, it is iconic. And I think it is the best part of this movie, these last 10 minutes where it's totally tense. Are they going to make it on time? And also they get to the airport and it's nothing but fog. You're wondering, are they going to take off? (laughs) You have the, you have the air traffic control guy saying, okay, visibility is one mile. You're like, Oh dear God, (laughs) bad. (laughs) they're flying away in soup. And you almost wonder, do they make it to where they're going? That's such a tiny little prop plane and such horrible fog in the middle of the night you're you're hoping for good things but you never really find out if they make it or not and, and you know are the are the nazis going to catch up with them before they get on the plane and are the nazis going to be able to stop the plane and then when rick shoots him shoots strasser you're like yes you're so excited <laughs> because you know rick finally stuck his neck out for something and like i said when he decides to stick his neck out for somebody he's deciding to stick his neck out for the entire world and for the good of humanity so this movie, this ending is fantastic. And and didn't they, like, Ingrid Bergman did not, they never told her which one she was going to pick. Is that, I, if I remember reading that something. Yeah. She did part it of the reason. first. But yeah, they did, did this one later. first. Okay. And they weren't really sure what they were going to choose, but they, they did this one first and decided they liked it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was very, you know, we don't know. We'll just give ourselves a couple options and see what the dailies look like. Yeah. And I think that helped her performance, right? To show the indecision. So, well, and she talked about it in this interview that I read with her, that it bothered her that she didn't know what was going to happen because she said that that's going to influence how I play this character is what if I know how this is going to end, that'll influence how I'm going to play this character. But I think her not knowing added to what I think the essence of her character was, which was desperation. Yeah, I agree. No freaking idea what's going to happen. So she's desperate. And I think it adds to her desperation. So I personally think it worked out well for her. Yeah, I do too. Fantastic. And, and Rachel, would you consider yourself satisfied? Um, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, there, there, 
even though they they struggle with how exactly this this film was going to end exactly mm-hmm. um yeah, i i think the writers always knew that Elsa was going to leave unless something happened with Laszlo cuz i mean we're still talking production no code era and uh, to have a, a married woman with the husband still alive leave him for someone else would have been a big no-no <laughs> in the production code. Um, yeah, uh, but they had considered killing off Laszlo at, at some point, and they were like, eh, yeah, that's kind of predictable. Um, so, uh, but it was really just kind of figuring out a way to break up this love triangle and have it satisfy both the story and the production code. Um, So things like, you know, nowadays we kind of know that when after Ilsa and Rick have that moment, she's like, you know, how much I loved you, how much I still love you. And they kiss and it's like dot, dot, dot. And then they had sex, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, it was way more overt and then, you know, the production co people are like, no, you've got to tone this down. She's a married woman. Um, so, uh, but, Figuring out a way to send her off with her husband and have Rick, you know, essentially doing doing the noble good thing, um, was where they landed that made sense for the story and wasn't going to get them in trouble with the uh, the Hayes Code. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I mean that that airport scene, you know, of Rick giving his speech and Ingrid Bergman standing there looking all tragic. Um, it's it's so iconic it, it, until it got closed and totally refurbished into something else. It was one of the vignettes in the great movie right at, at Disney's Hollywood Studios in Florida um, where they've got the animatronic bogey and uh, Bergman and, he, and he's, he's given the speech and She's standing there again, looking tragic, and the the plane is there in the background. And every now and then, the engine will kind of kick to life, and the propellers will start spinning. And the you know, there's only the front half of the plane; the back half of the plane is part of the Jungle Cruise. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> nice. Disney makes sure they use everything; nothing goes to waste. Um, so yeah, I mean that that scene is just so iconic that it was memorialized for so long on in that attraction um, until the attraction was taken out. Oh, well, see, I, I missed my chance, Rachel, and I've yet to 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 see any of these wonderful studios and 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 you know kind of tours and stuff as I mentioned before. And I'm like, dang, you know, the way you were kind of describing was painting a picture. And I was like, yeah, that's on my list, but alas, it's no yep. more. So you're gonna have to watch it on YouTube. There you go. And actually, speaking of watching on YouTube, folks, I love this ending. If you want to see the alternate ending from The Simpsons' point of view. 
check it out on YouTube because it is hilarious. They did a wonderful, wonderful spoof on how the movie should have ended. I'm not going to spoil it. So, folks, you want to check it out, do so. But, yeah, this ending was great. I I was I actually really I was found myself like. I want to watch this movie again, you know, kind of when this, when it, when it came to an end and uh, it's, it's just beautiful. And uh, I just, I, I was just wanted to kind of stand up and cheer because I really, really enjoyed the film throughout. And the ending was, was great. Granted, okay. It leaves a lot of uh, question marks. It's like, what is going to go on now between Rick and Louis? How is this friendship going to pan out, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, as to John's point, the fact of it representing almost America entering the conflict, I thought is a, is a great point for sure. Okay, guys, so let's get to our If We Were the Academy segment. Casablanca won the Oscar, of course, for Best Picture at the 16th Academy Awards, which were held at the Grauman's Chinese Theatre in Los Angeles on March the 2nd of 1944. Your host for the night was Jack Benny, and presenting the award for Best Picture was Sidney Franklin, played on this podcast by the wonderful Jesse Jackson, who, of course, you will have heard on the intro to this episode Casablanca was running up against nine other movies among our nominees were For Whom the Bell Tolls and I think of Metallica whenever I read that title starring <laughs> Carrie Cooper and Ingrid Bergman we of course had the human Heck comedy yeah. Yeah, in fact, I knew Rachel, you'd smile at that one, knowing what a big Metallica fan you are. I do the same thing every time I see that, I uh, immediately in my head. <laughs> you think of that, dun 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 dun. dun. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, oh, and, the mountains. Yep. Great, great, great song. So great. And, uh, yeah, always. And then, of course, we had, as I said, the human comedy with Mickey Rooney. We had Madame Curie with Greg Arson, The More the Merry with Gene Arthur, and Watch on the Rhine, speaking of which, with Betty Davis, to mention a few of our nominees. So, guys, the question, of course, is does Casablanca deserve the Oscar for Best Picture? Would you say it's at least Oscar worthy? Let's start with you, John. Would you say that, you know, looking also at the fellow nominees, would you say that Casablanca deserves the gold standard? Well, Casablanca is like one of the only two movies that I recognize from that list. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if the others were as good as, I think uh, more people would have them on their on their their Blu-ray and DVD shelves. And Zan, what about you? Would you say that Casablanca deserves the best picture? Nineteen forty-three. Yeah, I do. Um, there are some good movies in here. Um, Rhythm Bell Tolls is good. Madame Curie is good. Uh, Heaven Can Wait is good. But again, comedies don't win Oscars. Mm. Um, but we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of biopics this year. And, you know, like Madame Curie and the Song of Bernadette are biographies and a lot of sort of historical dramas. And I think we were, again, this was the war. We were trying to do anything we could to, to feel better. You know, that's why we get something like Song of Bernadette, which is, about a girl who performs miracles. <laughs> so, but when you look at what was up this year and what was out that year, and and I know I, I, I joke around about how I think Casablanca is a little bit overrated as a as a story. Um, it's not overrated as a movie, and I know that sounds dumb, but let me explain what I mean by that. Is that you know Michael Curtiz won the Best Director Oscar as well he should have um because this movie looks great uh this this movie got its adapted screenplay oscar because it's a fantastic story and it has fantastic dialogue like we've been saying all the time this this is iconic dialogue for a reason um just even even 
here's looking at you, kid. Is I mean, even though this is the most, this is the most quoted and the most misquoted movie in the history of American cinema. Mm. It's the, the dialogue in this is iconic, and you know you have the direction, and you you also have it with you know I don't know why it didn't win cinematography. You know we right. still had the two categories for cinematography, black and white and color. I don't know why this didn't win cinematography. I'm not sure why it didn't win editing. It should have won all the technical awards because it looks so beautiful, and. Why Humphrey Bogart didn't win an Oscar for this, I have no idea. And I think Humphrey Bogart should always be up for an Oscar, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's wonderful. I even think Claude Rains deserved an Oscar in this. Claude Rains is so great and so terrible, and it's too bad that we couldn't also have a nomination for Sidney Greenstreet as well, because I think they really add a lot to this movie. But like I said, as a story, not my favorite. If I'm going to, you know, what this movie does for me at the end of it, I'm like, okay, so, uh, Sydney Greenstreet, Peter Lorre, and Humphrey Bogart. Can we watch the Maltese Falcon now? But <laughs> it's not my preferred movie of any of these actors, but as a movie, it's, it's not overrated. I mean, it gets, it gets the accolades for a reason. It's just not one that I care to watch all that often. So, yeah, I think this actually deserves the Oscar for Best Picture, and I, and I really think it should have gotten some some Best best Actor Oscars mm. as well. I don't think it won enough Oscars for what it did, but I'm, I'm gl- I, the one that I'm happiest about is Michael Curtis winning director for this because he absolutely, absolutely deserves it. I, I very much agree with you. And, and Rachel, do you think this that Casablanca deserves the gold standard? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I haven't seen any of the others. I've got, uh, I've got, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls and Madame Curie waiting for me. My library was slow in getting stuff to me. (laughs) (laughs) We had a holiday on Monday too, and it was closed. So that I'm sure that has something to do with it. Um, so I, I have really have nothing to hold it up against, uh, but my guess more than likely is my opinion won't change as far as whether it deserves it. Um, like I said, it's not a bad movie, but it's just, eh, I'm kind of like Xan. Like, I'll just go watch the Maltese Falcon if I want some of these faces on my screen again. Because uh, I think that's, I think it's a, a better film. It's more, more engaging. Um yeah, the the yeah, I don't know why it didn't win some of those those technical um awards. Mm. Um uh interestingly enough, it it won best screenplay um which went to the Epsteins and Howard Koch, um, but there was actually a fourth gentleman that worked on the script, and we actually have him to thank for a lot of the romantic elements. Mm. Um, and they offered him writing credit, and he turned it down because he only wanted writing credit if he was the only person worked on the script. <laughs> okay. So he didn't get the Oscar. He would have been part of that group that walked away with that best screenplay Oscar. Uh, so, oops. So when somebody <laughs> offers you credit on something, you should probably take it. Yeah. You just never know. Um, 
you know, Claude Rains did get nominated for Best Supporting Actor, um, but but did not win it. Um, interestingly enough, Ingrid Bergman was nominated for Best Actress, but not for this movie. It was for her for the Bell Tolls, which she made after this. Um, so, because um, they actually wanted to do some possible pickups after the fact, and she'd already cut her hair <laughs> for <laughs> the next role. Uh, so, and then Humphrey Bogart got got nominated for Best Actor, but uh, didn't did not win. Um, so yeah, it really just walked away. It was nominated for like eight or nine Oscars, and it just won the three, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, best best screenplay, best director, and then best picture. Which the best picture Oscar is supposed to go to the producer. Mm-hmm. Um, Hal Wallace was sitting in the audience and apparently somewhat in the row of seats next to a bunch of um, uh, a bunch uh, next to Jack Warner's family mm-hmm. so when they announced the <laughs> the <laughs> Casablanca one Jack Warner got to the stage before him <laughs> and accepted the award instead oh, <laughs> and wow. Wallace never was able to get there because he was boxed in by the Warner family and apparently it pissed him off so much they ended up leaving uh, oh, wow. Warner Brothers <laughs> last okay. spring. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, even just because you're part of a winning production does not mean that you get to accept the award. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a, that's what's going kind of a fabulous anecdote. And Jesse, you know, you having played the Sydney Franklin for us on this uh, on this podcast, you know, officially announcing the winner of of this year, do you um, do you feel that uh, Casablanca deserved the the Oscar for Best Picture? I absolutely do. I went and looked at the other uh, movies, and they are. I am sure they're all fine films. I I don't know of any of them. Um, I recognize a couple of the titles. They aren't things. I think this. I think this is an American classic. Uh, you know, um, I bought a copy of the DVD, and Roger Ebert had a commentary on it, and he says that whenever anyone asks him what's the best film, he always says Citizen Kane. But when someone asks him what is his favorite film, he says Casablanca. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, very, very well put, sir. So let's get to ratings then. Where does this movie rate for you guys on a scale of 1 to 10? Let's start with you, Zan. What do you give Casablanca out of 10? Um, I'm going to go ahead and give this one a 7 out mm-hmm. of 10 um, for being, for having great dialogue and for being a wonderful commentary on World War II and war in general. Um, a lot of times when we see a war movie, we've got your black and white, you know, the, the, the axis and the allies, <laughs> mm-hmm. you have your, your protagonist and your antagonist. It's very black and white. But in this movie, this is a world of refugees and war profiteers, which is very interesting and overlooked story about what happens during wartime. And I like that this movie had the, the the courage to depict this at the time it depicted it and it had the courage to 
it was an, it was a middle finger to the Nazis and it was a little bit of a middle finger to France for being so um, quick to get in bed with the Nazis for a better, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And like I said, even though it centers around a love story that I don't particularly care about, that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It, there's a lot of really good things about it. It has great performances, great dialogue, great direction. And it it is a must see. I mean, I, there there are some movies out there that people say are phenomenal and you you know quintessential American cinema. And I argue saying you could probably skip it if you wanted to. Um, <laughs> I've I've said that about a few of our Oscar winners here. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to be a cinephile, you should probably watch every single Oscar nominated or Oscar winning Best Picture. But some of them aren't that great. And this is not one of those. I do think everybody should see this one. But, you know, just because I don't particularly care doesn't mean it's a bad movie. So it just, this one gets a seven for me. Great. And, and Rachel, what do you give this film? Yeah, I'm with Zan. I think I'm just going to give it a seven. Like I said, it's mm. not terrible. But it's it's not all that I it doesn't live up to the hype that I've heard about it. You know, I went into it with expectations based on what I understand about this movie. Um, you know, people are like some people are like, you know, this is the greatest movie. You know, it's it's untouchable as far as remaking it. Um, it's just it's just okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's passable, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a decent movie, um, you know. Especially consider, you know, it's it's uh, beautifully done. Especially considering we were in the middle of the war and things like uh, building sets was not possible because they had to be diligent with their, you know, supplies because sure. um, every every spare bit and bob needed to go to the war effort. So, like, Rick's Cafe is the only new set that was built. Uh, everything else are reused from previous Warner Brother productions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, good old American ingenuity there. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a good... You know, it, it, decent performances from a number of the cast. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting cast. Um, any rumors that you may have seen uh, about supposedly, you know, cast that supposedly people like Ronald Reagan were originally thought to be cast in this movie are just uh, PR bunk <laughs> 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 from that that time period. Um, which, you know, if Bogart and Bergman had decided to walk out, maybe, who knows, maybe Ronald Reagan would have ended up in this movie. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who knows? We'll never know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's one of those that you should probably watch at least once if you do consider yourself a, a, a cinephile, um, especially the, the golden age of Hollywood uh, of, this, of this time period. It's one that you should check off but am i going to watch it again probably not hmm. okay well totally fair there for sure and, and jesse what do you give this film uh, i'm going to be the anti-russian judge uh, <laughs> you know this i think is a perfect movie mm-hmm. um i i just adore this movie uh, every time i watch it i re-love it 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 
makes me smile. It it makes me tear up. Um, you know, it's a ten. I, I would give it ten out of ten letters of transit. I like that. Very well put. And John, what do you give it? <laughs> I'm, I'm, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm right there with Jesse. Um, I, when I when I first saw this movie years and years ago, I loved it, and I love it even today. Uh, <clears throat> ex-wife number one used to say, uh, you know, you listen to this heavy metal music, you drive these 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 big muscle cars, but you love Casablanca. <laughs> Damn right, I love Casablanca. And it's just, and maybe it's the romantic in me. And obviously, that didn't work out too well with two divorces, but. <laughs> I still have Casablanca to watch every year on my birthday and whenever I want to. So, yeah. And that just means that you have very good taste. Thank you so much. And I appreciate that. Varied taste. <laughs> it's like, I'm just, but, I'm just as content to sit and watch Singing in the Rain five million times and, and, and then go headbang at a Metallica concert. So, there you, you go. Know, and everyone's so got their thing. And the, the, one of the things I love about this movie is you could watch it 20 times and see something different in it each time. And when you're when, watch it again and watch the uh, watch the scene with all the refugees, uh, you'll see like three or four things you missed on the first first couple of viewings. The scene in the marketplace. There's things that like little tidbits that you might have missed, and it's 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 perfect. I love it. And when uh, when I read years ago that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of scriptwriters and screenwriters they they look at this as a perfect script. I mean, it might not be a perfect story, but it's a perfect script in terms of how a movie is laid out. I mean, they were, they're dead on with that, I mean, in my opinion. So that's, yeah, 10 out of 10. Oh, well, great. I'm actually going to get, I'm going to, I guess, somewhat, I guess one could say split the difference. I'm going to actually give this an 8 out of 10, as I really enjoyed it. I'm probably going to rewatch it for sure. I mean, I, I guess, yeah, because I actually put in a purchase for the Blu-ray. So, yes, I'm going to be rewatching it. And, uh, yeah, it was great fun. And I actually, my, my memories of, of this, you know, before even seeing this as a child was my grandmother taking me to Madame Tussauds in, uh, in London. And there was there was Humphrey Bogart dressed, of course, as Rick Blaine. And uh, I was like, oh, who is that guy? And my grandma was like, that's <laughs> Casablanca. You have to watch that and everything. I was like, OK. Um, but yeah, it was it's it's a it's a great movie. And it's uh, it hits, I think, all the right notes. And folks, yeah, definitely, definitely check it out for sure. Definitely put it on your watch list if you have yet to see it. At least watch it once. Indeed. So it's an eight out of ten for me. So we talked about this film and dissected it. And should you folks who wish to join us on one of our discussions or simply share your feedback about the podcast or certain films in writing, you can do so by shooting us an email at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. That's goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. Feel free to follow us on Twitter where you can find us at, at Oscars Gold or on Facebook where you can find us as Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. We love hearing from you guys and we also appreciate the follow and support. Also, if you'd like to hear um, myself, Rachel and Zan talk about films like Notorious, Singing in the Rain, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back and much more, you can check out the great tiers we have going on on patreon and become a patron today that's patreon.com slash gold standard oscars that said of course let's get to shameless self-promotion here guys let's start with rachel here rachel where can folks find you uh you can find me with the five-ish fangirls podcast uh we are the five-ish fangirls uh we are a uh, a Pop culture, geek culture, entertainment, uh, podcast, talk books, movies, video games, all sorts of uh, 
geeky and nerdy things. Um, and uh, you can find us pretty much on every podcast platform out there. And you can also find us at the fiveishfangirls.com. Uh, from there, you find links to uh, all of our other social media platforms. And there is a About Us page. And you can find links to my personal ones as well. Fantastic. And Jesse, what about you? I am available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson. DFW. From there, you can see all the other podcasts that some of them I co-host with Nick. Uh, <laughs> some of them I sometimes co-host with John and Zan. So uh, please check it out. And I just want to say, because I'm running late to my next podcast, that uh, this was a joy to have you guys uh, jo- you guys invite me and play. I appreciate this so much, getting to play in your space. This was a blast. Well, thank you so much for sure, Jesse. And John, what about you? Tell folks, tell the folks out there about the great things that you do. Yes, and also thank you too. I mean, when when I saw you guys were going to be doing Casablanca, I was just like, I was like, oh, please, please, please. <laughs> so yes, so many thanks. I, I had a great time with you guys. Uh, online, uh, I host two different uh, Doctor Who pages. One is the Ohio Type Forty. We're one of the four largest Doctor Who groups in the uh, the Buckeye State, the wonderful state of Ohio. And also Type 2 Doctor Who is it's a support group for Doctor Who fans who are also Type 2 diabetics like myself. And uh, also now going about uh, the six-month mark, so about half a year, um, I have a YouTube channel called Out of This World Models and Minis, uh, where I build models, paint miniatures of sci-fi, fantasy, uh, ranging from Star Wars, Doctor Who, Star Trek, and Dungeons and & Dragons. So you can check that out. I'm currently finishing up... Uh, 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 actually, yeah, finishing up a uh, uh, Christmas present uh, for a good friend of mine that uh, was late because of uh, thanks to COVID. But uh, that next uh, video should be up by this weekend. Fantastic! And John, may I once again say you do a wonderful canine. I love the canine that you did there that you painted. It was the canine beautiful. was a it was a fun kit to build. Yeah, got a lot of good lot a lot of views on that one. Well, no surprise, and it, you did it, you did it more than justice for sure. And Zan, where can folks find you? I just have to tell John that I loved his macros. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I'm working on part two, so thank yes. you. Awesome, yeah, that is that that was that was beautiful. Um, I can be found talking all things birthday boy David Lynch. David Lynch's birthday was yesterday, and all things Twin Peaks related with Charles Skaggs on Ghost with the Twin Peaks podcast. And any other movies that we, Charles and I love and strike our fancy that we just want to get drunk and talk about, we can talk <laughs> about on Drug Cinema. We will be recording this week, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, which is happens to be my favorite movie. So <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to a celebratory watch of... That would now that we've sent the red droids back to their home planet in the United States. And uh, I'm on the internet on Twitter and Instagram as Udenax19 and Facebook as Zan Sprouse. 
Fantastic. And folks, when it comes to me, I do host the Whiskey and Cigarette Show where we play today's country, traditional country, and everything else in between. For more info about that and where to tune in, you can visit our website. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, if superhero movies are your speed, I do also host the Happiness and Darkness podcast where we discuss superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse Image, and more. If you'd like to join me on there and discuss a superhero movie of your choice, feel free to send me an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. We're also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and the Instagram. And speaking of the aforementioned Charles Skaggs, uh, Titan Talk that I do uh, co-host with Charles and Jesse is currently on hiatus because we're waiting for the new seasons of both Doom Patrol and Titans. However, be sure to check out our other endeavor, the Fandom Zone podcast, where we are going through that wonderful, wonderful TV goodness, which is WandaVision. We recently uh, reviewed the first two episodes of that and are having a blast doing that. And speaking of things to come on this show, next time we will be discussing the 1944 Leo McCary film, Going My Way. Rachel and Zan, as always, I love talking to you both. And any thoughts when it comes to Going My Way? Will this be a first watcher or have you seen this one already? This no will be idea. A first, yeah, this will be a first watch for me because you think I hate Claude Rains. Bing Crosby, maybe. Way do you hear me rail about Bing Crosby? I, Claude Rains, I'll at least admit, is a good actor. I just hate him. Bing Crosby, I just hate. So <laughs> I have. I, I'm gonna not. I'm gonna not. Enjoy, next week is gonna be a labor of love. I'm gonna watch this movie so I can talk to you guys, and that's the only reason why I'm going to. <laughs> and and show my hands right right at the get go here. I'm showing my hand. I'm not gonna like this movie. <laughs> and uh, Rachel, you know this this being a semi musical, uh, so this will be a first watch for you too. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. So I guess we'll, we'll definitely have a lot to talk about when it comes to that one. Jesse, I know, is, has had to leave early, but we definitely appreciate him being with us today. John, thank you again so much for, for joining us here in the Gold Standard Theatre, and we definitely look forward to, to having you back soon. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, well, the pleasure was certainly ours. Well, that said, folks, we will see you next time with Going My Way. Until then, enjoy those movies and keep that popcorn hot. Ciao. My people. You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you on that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man and man must have his mate that no 